You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. What are you talking about? No, it's not him. There's only one more. There is only one more. There is, that's, that's it. One more. Get around. They saw your team put up zero effort. Wake up! Remember in the old days they used to have oxygen for them. Where's the oxygen? They play like absolute just garbage. <laughs> this, this is the Sports Loud Mouths. Yay! Man, can you keep it down? I'm trying to introduce here. With Errol Marks and Speedy Beanie. You're not even a has-been. You're a never was. You're a never was. May 18th, ladies and gentlemen, a new show of the sports, Loudmouths. I'm your host, Errol Marks, my co-host, Speeder, Speedy Petey, 631-672-3108 is the number. And ladies and gentlemen, you can check out our website at www.worldwidesportsradio.com. Check out all our shows throughout the week. They are live and in color throughout all the social media markets. And you can listen to our stream by going to www.worldwidesportsradio.com. And ladies and gentlemen, you can check out the Sports Loudmouths, which airs every, every, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. and every, every, every Thursdays at 9 p.m. live. Tune in every single week. And you can check us out only by going to www.worldwidesportsradio.com. Speedy, how did you like that introduction? It was every, 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 every which way. Very mm, unique. Yummy. And, yes, indeed. Yummy. <laughs> yummy. You're going to eat every, every that's imaginable. You might get full. I am eating candy right now. I don't usually eat candy before the show. It gives me a little bit of energy. After coming back from an event uh, run by the New York Islanders, and uh, there were a bunch of jets there, a bunch of... There was no Rangers there, but there were a lot of Islanders. Ryan Pulak was there. Lou Lamorello was there. I got a story quickly to tell everybody uh, about when I met Lou. Uh, just everybody. John Nitty was there. Our friend John, he was there. He's always at those uh, those functions. So uh, Wesley Walker was there. I saw him there. I said hello to Wes. Uh, just craziness. Uh, Steve Webb was there. So ex-Islander, if you remember him. Uh, Mr. Goring was there. Mm-hmm. And... Bobby Nystrom was there. there so a lot of different people. It was fantastic. I went for a cocktail hour, and I didn't stay for the whole event because I'm here doing the show. But when I had the opportunity to walk up to Lou, Lou was by himself. I went up to Lou, and I introduced myself. I asked him if we can get him on the show. I, he said I have to reach out to the PR person for the Islanders, of course. And then I just wanted to tell him what I thought about the Islander season, uh, stating that the Islanders are a little bit old. They have to get younger. I also told Lou, I think the defense started playing better in the second half. I'm questioning the whole Lambert thing. I asked him, what are you doing with Lambert? He kind of gave me a look like I had six heads. <laughs> I also said uh, the Engvall trade was an interesting trade. It added a little bit of speed after losing Barzell for 20-some-odd games. And then I, I said to him that in the playoffs, it just didn't. we didn't have enough firepower to knock off Carolina. And hopefully this offseason, you go after some speed, young, and goal scorers. That's what I think you need to do. And he looked at me and said, well, thank you for your opinion. I also said, 
It does help when you have one of the best goaltenders in the NHL in Sorokin. And uh, uh, I said that Gart Snow drafted him in the third round. I didn't think anybody was going to bring get him to come to New York, get him to come to the NHL. I thought he was really happy in the KHL. And I said, when you came to the team, you were one of the reasons why he decided to come and play in New York. And, obviously, uh, his friend over there with the Rangers. So, uh, as everybody knows. But uh, Lou... Uh, was an interesting guy. Uh, he lost a lot of weight. And uh, he looks good. He looks good. It doesn't look like he's going anywhere as he was representing the New York Islanders at this event. So I was happy um, that I met Lou. That was the first time I actually had a conversation one-on-one with Lou. And hopefully we could get him on the show. So that's that's my story right there, Speedy. Now, now it was cocktail hour. Was Lou drinking anything? No, he wasn't. <laughs> he was not. Uh, but uh, John Nitty was. Ah. I love John. John is... It's great when you walk through an event like that and John saw me, he didn't even question what my name was. He's like one of very few people that remember how to pronounce my name. And uh, he was actually ecstatic that I was there. And he says, are you staying for the whole event? I said, no, I got a show to do tonight. So, uh, so uh, it was a great event for the little bit of time that I was there. And uh, me coming back and having an opportunity to do the show tonight at 1030. We'll be talking to former Nets, Knicks, and Raptors point guard. Yes, he is coming on tonight, Chris Childs. I am excited. I, I We spoke to Chris before the show. Uh, he's looking forward to it. So this will be a fun interview, as it always is. So Chris will be joining us at 1030. Uh, James Harden opts out of his player option with the 76ers, will become a free agent in the offseason. Where does that – what does that spell, and where does that spell where he's going? That's the question. Hopefully it's not the Knicks. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Sources believe the Knicks are very likely to trade Mitchell Robinson in – in the offseason for a star player. Not surprised. A big man. You know what that means. Uh, do I hear Giannis, ladies and gentlemen? Domingo Herman suspended for 10 games after his second sick, sticky substance violation. I said it before the season started, and I'll say it again. The umpires are going to crack down on this. And... Obviously, with the Max Scherzer thing, which I know Jeff was attacking me before the show, saying the Yankees are cheaters. <laughs> you know what's so funny? Everything comes out, and anything that comes out of that guy's mouth, it's always about New York. Always bad about New York. And because the Yankees and Aaron Judge was looking at the dugout, he was cheating, ladies and gentlemen. We will get into that. The Blue Jays accuse Aaron Judge for illegally stealing signs during Monday's and Tuesday's game. Mets call up third base prospect Mark Vientos and could call up Gary Sanchez as the weekend moves forward. So uh, Gary Sanchez... Our ex-Yankee catcher could be starting for the New York Mets very, very soon. Carl Lawson restructures his contract, giving the Jets an extra $12.7 million in cap space. NHL and NBA Conference Finals picks. Bracket Wars Championship match. The Chicago Bulls of the mid-late 90s versus the New York Yankees of the 90s. Great show lined up for you. And again, 1030, Chris Childs. One, get, one guest tonight. It's not two, so a lot of content to get into. I'm sure we're going to hear from Jeff tonight one way or another because I'm going to piss him off. Let's get into it. Sources believe the Knicks are very likely to trade Mitchell Robertson. Robinson. Here's the thing. 
Robinson will be entering his second year of a four-year $60 million contract. Robinson was top 20 in the NBA in rebounds per game with a nine point with 9.4 rebounds per game, seventh in the NBA in blocks per game with 1.8, and he was second in offensive rebounds per game with 4.5. Players the Knicks could target including or includes Bradley Beal, Zach Levine, Carl Anthony Towns, and Zion Williamson. The Knicks don't have a first-round pick this year, but do have 11 total first-round picks in the next seven seasons. The Knicks have also been linked to superstar Luka Doncic and Giannis, as well with plenty of space to bring in a super max contract. Mitchell Robinson can't stay healthy. This man cannot stay healthy. And when he is healthy, he's a good player. He is a natural center. When we try to figure out a natural center of the 90s and the late 80s, there are not many guys that are paint-spoken big men. Mitchell Robinson is is as close as a big man of the 90s than we've ever seen. We look at the NBA now, a lot of these big men are three-point shooters. Jokic, three-point shooter, great paint player, fantastic player. Giannis, he's another paint player. There are very few guys like Mitchell Robinson in a league. The problem with the Knicks and Mitchell Robinson since he came into the league, one was was his weight. He put on some muscle over the last couple of years, put on some size, gained 30 pounds of muscle. He looks much better than he did when he came and he was drafted in the second round by the New York Knicks. The problem with Mitchell Robinson is not only just his injuries. The problem with Mitchell Robinson has always been consistency. And that's the problem with the Knicks in the playoffs. They don't get any consistency. Julius Randle, for the second playoff run for the New York Knicks, with the New York Knicks, he didn't show up against Miami. And when he did play against the Cavaliers after his ankle injury, he didn't show up in that series either. The problem with Tom Tibble and the way he runs his offense and the way, the way he runs his defense really is that he, ha- he, he starts eight guys. Eight guys usually throughout the season. This year, he started ten guys. But in the playoffs, he cuts it down to eight to seven guys. And he wears these guys out. Jalen Brunson in the Miami Heat series played almost 48 minutes a game. And for Jalen Brunson coming off an injury at the end of the season, ankle injury, wrist injury, I understand he is the only consistent offensive player the Knicks had throughout the playoffs. But when you pay R.J. Barrett, $100 $100 million in the offseason. You give Mitchell Robinson a $60 million, $60 million extension for four years. And then you, you make a move. You bring in Fournier two years ago to be your shooter, your three-point shooter. He barely played this season. Derrick Rose had an extension in the offseason. He barely played this season. When you have lost money on that bench and you're not using that money when you can invest it into another player, maybe a Zach Levine, 
Or, hey, maybe making a trade for a super max player like a Luka Doncic, which gives you a perimeter offensive player, which the Knicks lack and has lacked all season long. They don't have a three-point shooter. This is a problem. The Knicks were the worst NBA team when it came to three-point percentage field goals. When you're not scoring with the three and teams are shooting a clip of 28 to 33 point shots every single game. And no matter how good the Knicks are in the paint, if they're shooting twos and they're shooting threes, if they're shooting and they're making as many shots and they have the same shooting percentage, usually the team that shoots more threes win the game. And Mitchell Robinson is not a three point shooter. He is a perimeter player. And the way the game is changing and transitioning, you need to find that guy. Now, Giannis, if Giannis becomes available, is not a three-point shooter. But what Giannis does, he draws double teams, sometimes triple teams, which opens up the perimeter, opens up the inside game for some of these players, like a a Julius Randle or an R.J. Barrett who needs to stop shooting threes because he's horrible. The problem with the Knicks this season was consistency when it comes to shooting. And when you have a guy like Mitchell Robinson, fantastic all-around player as far as the perimeter game, he's not a good free-throw shooter, but he's been better this year than he was over the first two years in the NBA. You're not going to do what you want on the court when it comes to offensive ways of scoring. Now. I look at the the league as a whole, and there's there's a lot of interesting stories that are coming out in the NBA, being that the season's almost over, you're in the Western Conference Finals, you're in the Eastern Conference Finals, coaches are getting fired all over the league, and there are stories coming out of New York that they might not fire Tom Thibodeau. But here's the problem with Tom. Tom, over the years, and me and Josh Silverberg were talking about this today. Coaches in New York can never, and, and, and I can name a bunch of coaches, Buck Showalter. Buck Showalter never managed in a World Series. No matter how many good teams he's managed in, in professional baseball, Baltimore, great team. See, at one point, um, Arizona was a good team when he was coaching that team. He leaves, they go, they go all the way to a World Series. Texas, the Rangers, he leaves Washington, takes them back-to-back years to a World Series. This man has never actually managed in the World Series. So he has taken teams as far as he can take them. And he is very bad or has a reason behind his madness on why he doesn't start or play the young players. Tom Thibodeau is the same type of coach with the New York Knicks. He has all these young players. The only player consistently that he started this year was Grimes and Quigley. Obi Toppin barely played. Sims barely played. He has a bunch of young guys on that bench that you can play at least 20 minutes a game, 15 minutes a game, and these old guys, like Julius Randle, who is not old, he's 27 years old, is still a guy that is playing sometimes 43 to 44 minutes a game and shoots the ball at a clip. And 
To me, I don't care if he's all NBA. I don't care uh, what he's done for the New York Knicks since, since he's come here from, I think it was the Pelicans. This man is making a lot of money, and this man cannot play in the playoffs. Jalen Brunson last year proved that he can play in the playoffs. He helped Luka Doncic take that Mavericks team all the way to the Western Conference Finals. They lost, but he helped them. In the offseason, he signs with the New York Knicks, and he showed, again, that he could take another team deep into the playoffs. But if you're not getting any consistency at the three-point line, you can't shoot free throws. And by the way, you cannot rebound against a Miami team that started two G-level players in that series because our friend Tyler Hero got hurt in the beginning of the playoffs. That, to me, is a problem. And I don't want to hear about what they what they did against Boston last night, Okay. That series is going seven. I believe it. It's going seven. Miami is a better defensively-minded team. It also has, I believe, Spolstra, who is the best coach in the NBA. There's no question that he is. Celtics have a young coach, a first-year coach, but has veteran players in Jason Tatum, who, by the way, played in the in the finals last year. Jalen Brown, who, by the way, played in the finals last year. Marcus Smart, by the way, played in the finals last year. Practically that whole team, besides Brogdon and maybe two or three other players, all played in the finals last year. So consistency over the last couple of years for the Boston Celtics. And, and look how, how quick over the last couple of years Boston has grown from, obviously, Brad Stevens moving to the GM position and bringing in a a coach from his bench, then get firing him and bringing another coach from his bench and taking this team all the way again to an Eastern Conference Finals. So Mitchell Robinson, am I surprised that you're hearing stories that he is probably going to be a piece that they're going to trade to maybe bring in another superstar to play with a guy like Jalen Brunson, I'm not surprised. Yeah, he's also the most finished product of what you're getting out of him. You know Mitchell Robinson is going to have flaws. He's not going to be a shooter. He's not going to be a free-throw shooter, obviously. He was less than 50%. But you know he's going to give you great pure center traits that you like. And like you said, he's still very long and good defensively on the perimeter for somebody that's more of a true center. A great rebounder, great blocker. So they know what they're getting out of him. If they were to dangle somebody else like R.J. Barrett, who might have some untapped potential, no question, but is not as much of a sure thing, has flaws in his game like you are saying with the three-point shooting, some efficiency issues, turnover issues, somebody else like Grimes or Quigley that isn't as developed, you're, maybe teams are not going to look at that the same way. I think Quigley became more developed this year. Sure. Uh, he, he was runner-up for six-man of the year. Uh, to, get a, uh, to get a player like that in the draft in the late first round a couple of years ago, everybody was questioning the Knicks moving up and bringing in Quigley. And, and I t- I'll tell you this, Quigley was the steal of that draft. Absolute steal. Now, he reminds me of C.J. McCollum. I told you guys this. Now, C.J. McCollum is more of a prolific offensive player. He's a better three-point shooter. But what Quigley could do, being that he's only 23, 24 years old, is he gives the Knicks depth off the bench, which they have lacked over the years, really, since the 90s Knicks. 
And Quigley, because of his three-point shooting prowess, is still going to be a piece they could definitely use, too. And, and maybe the Knicks do multiple deals. Who knows? Like, like you were saying, they have room if they can move Julius Randle, which they should do anyway because he's a god-awful playoff player. And if they maybe trade some of the deals that are on rookie value deals like Robinson or Barrett, if they have to include Barrett in the deal, maybe they end up with getting two star players in that sense, too. I think most likely it's most likely Zach Levine, some combination of that of the four that you listed. But again, I also wouldn't rule out a bigger name like Luka Doncic because the Mavericks are in just free fall right now. <laughs> I think when when you're looking at, looking at all these players, a lot of these guys are not free agents. As, as a matter of fact, all of them are not free agents. They're all under contract. And there's and Speedy, we were talking about it uh, yesterday when we weren't on air, and we were going back and forth on who's going to be available in this offseason's free agency market. And the best guy that is a free agent in this free agency market is probably Draymond Green. That's it. There is nobody, and a lot of these teams, a lot of these big-time teams, or even these small-valued teams in the league, like Washington, they sign their players to a long-term deal. They don't want them to go to free agency. They don't want to lose them to, for nothing. Now, Bradley Beal is a good player. He's a great shooter, one of the better three-point shooters in the NBA. He is a nice player, and that's, that's a player that— in the backcourt with the, a guy like Jalen Brunson, you could define that backcourt as one of the best backcourts in the NBA if you bring in a Bradley Beal. Here's the problem with Bradley Beal. Over the last couple of years, he's become better defensively, but he's not known for his defense. And if Tom Thibodeau stays here and you bring Bradley Beal in here, he will wear Bradley Beal out offensive, I mean defensively, so he cannot be as efficient offensively that he has been in his whole career. Also, the, not that he has the injury-prone label, but as he's gotten older, he definitely has had some naggy injuries throughout each of the last two seasons. That's called the that's caused the Wizards to have to kind of load-manage him in the second half of the season, and this year, when they seemed like they were completely out of it for a while, they weren't even playing him for us. The young players were rallying them back, too, so I would much rather take my chances with somebody like a Zach Levine, who's younger and still pretty durable in himself, too. When you look at the list of the four players that you listed. Towns is somebody that is good, but again, he's been soft at certain points in his career, not as good defensively inside. And Zion Williamson at that kind of money, I don't know if I want to take a chance on right now. I might want to wait for that contract to expire, and then maybe down the road, if Barrett's still there, then maybe pursue him. Now there's James Harden, okay? Now, being that James Harden opt out of his contract, he is a free agent this year. He's an unrestricted free agent. So he can go wherever he'd like to go. Here's the problem with James Harden. He had a pretty good playoff run with the 76ers, but he has been known to be a coach killer, just like Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. All three of those clowns played on one team at one point with the Nets, and all of them, at least once or twice, has made an organization fire a coach. All three of them. Now, James Harden is, to me, a one-dimensional type of player. He does not play defense. You're not going to get anything from him on the defensive side of the ball. Not at all. So if he goes to a team, he is going to have to go to a team that has really a run-and-gun offense. And when you look at some of those teams right now, I think the best move for him to do to, for him to go is one of these young teams that are starting to build and starting to go somewhere, Detroit being one of them. Maybe go back to OKC and play with that team because they have a bunch of good young defensive players where if he lacks the defensive side of the ball, it doesn't matter. They have a bunch of young guys that can play defense and defend multiple positions. James Harden is making a lot of money. 
He opted out of his player option of $35.6 million for next year. Bleacher Report NBA insider Chris Haynes reported that Harden took a $14.4 million pay cut to try and add more depth to the roster to contend for a championship this year. James Harden can get a max contract worth four years, $210 million with the 76ers, or a four-year, $201 million contract for another, with another team. And that's only $9 million that he's losing. Many reports believe that James Harden was the driving force in the decision to fire Doc Rivers. Many NBA insiders believe that James Harden could return back to the Rockets to join that to, to, a, to join that team. I've been saying a young team, uh, which has top five picks like Jalen Green, Jabari Smith. The Rockets don't have any max contracts on their team. In the regular season, Harden averaged 21 points per game, six rebounds per game, and a league-leading 10.7 assists per game. In the playoffs, Harden averaged 20.3 points per game, 8.3 assists a game, 6.2 rebounds per game, and shot just 39.3% field goal percentage. He also had a combined 39 points in the final three games of their series against the Celtics. He is a prolific offensive player. There's no question. If you want a guy strictly to bring in offensively and dominate what he does best, passing the ball and shooting the ball up by a clip then you bring in somebody like James Harden. But if you expect James Harden to help you move further as a team, as a full, top, young, or full-fledged, talented team to the playoffs and make a run for a championship, that's not going to happen because he's never won a championship. He played for that OKC team with Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant in the primes of their career. They were a good team, and they couldn't get over the hump. Even with him winning six man of the year two or three times. That wasn't enough. And then he went to the Rockets. And that probably gave him his best chance of winning. It really did. Because he really changed his game. He became the guy with the Houston Rockets. And they had some pieces. And they had a chance one year with Chris Paul to make it all the way to the the NBA Finals. Chris Paul got hurt. Before in the, I think it was the Western Conference Finals. Yeah, it was Game Five of the Western Conference Finals. He missed Game Six and Game Seven, and they were up three to two. And they were up by I think twenty something points at halftime too of Game Seven, even without Chris Paul, they blew that. So. And the same thing happened to the Suns this year, losing Chris Paul. Chris Paul is an injury prone player. James Harden is not a winner. He's never been a winner. He's never won an NBA championship. If you look at Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant. And James Harden, only one of them won a championship. One of them. Just think about it. You have legitimately three Hall of Fame players. Three of the best players of their positions. As a matter of fact, all three of them won MVPs. Every one of them. I mean, Russell Westbrook had one of the greatest seasons we'll ever see an NBA player have. How many triple doubles did he have that year? 40? Record setting for a record held by Oscar Robertson Oscar for 50 Robertson. years. <laughs> he broke records. Everybody was talking about how great Russell Westbrook is, how fast he is, the fastest player we've ever seen go from one, one side of the court to the other. Problem with him, he wasn't a team player. He was a me player. 
And Kevin Durant, his whole career was a me player until he went to Golden State when he couldn't be a me player anymore because they have a bunch of me players on that team. And that's the problem with James Harden, too. James Harden is such a me player where he shoots teams out of games in the playoffs, too. You mentioned 39 points combined in game five, six, and seven of the semifinals against the Celtics. That is 13 points per game. Like, there's a bunch of guys off the team's benches that are better than that. It, you're shooting 39%, and there were less, he, he was less than 30% in some of those games, too. That is really bad. So, I actually like what you said about OKC. Like, that's actually kind of interesting. Like, a team like that being perfect for him because they have two longer point guards. Shea Gildas-Alexander was a first-team All-NBA point guard this year. And Josh Giddy, who was a nice young player, I think he has the rookie record for triple-doubles last year in his rookie year. Like, they're not guys that are going to be prolific volume scorers, but they still could score a lot. And James Harden could be that type of guy. And then you have a team, maybe another team too, like Minnesota, that if they trade Towns, they could go in a backcourt with Anthony Edwards and something like that. He could be more of a facilitator. So there are teams like that in the Western Conference that are very interesting. I, I think when... When we're looking at this this offseason and, and who could become available, and we're hearing James Harden's going to be available because he opted out of his player contract. And then we, we, we speak about Draymond Green. Now, Draymond Green is washed up. He is not the same player he once was. And he fit the mold. He was the aggressive. He was the facilitator when it comes to defensive side of the ball. He was the anchor, just like Dennis Rodman was with, with Detroit when he won Defensive Player of the Year and when he went to the Chicago Bulls. He was the missing link, the missing piece for that second that second round with uh, Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, that second go-around with that team after Michael Jordan came back from his, uh, his early retirement. You look at Draymond Green, he's probably going to go to a younger team. Because none of these veteran teams are going to want a player with a big mouth who gets himself into trouble and causes trouble more than helps a team. But there is this free agency market is not great. So a lot of these teams that have their superstars under contract are going to have to give up a significant amount for a guy like Giannis. The Greek freak. But if Giannis becomes available, what are some of these teams going to have to offer to get him? You're probably going to have to give up two starters. You're probably going to have to give up at least four first-round draft picks for the future. And maybe a young player on your roster right now. That's going to get it done. Maybe even more. A Luka Doncic? Are you kidding me? Are you guys kidding me? Mark Cuban, if he ever decides to part ways with Luka Doncic because he doesn't want to be there, and he has come out and said, if they don't make any moves this offseason, what are they going to make? They have nothing on their roster right now. They didn't even win the lottery, okay? They did everything in their possible in, in every possible way for the last two weeks to lose every one of their games as the NBA fined them for doing that. And they didn't even get... I, they didn't get in the top five. They had the tenth pick, and if they got, a, if they had the eleventh and eleventh and deeper, the Knicks would have had their pick. You look at the, you look at this offseason for basketball. Nothing really sticks out. Now, Jalen Brown, who becomes an unrestricted free agent next year, do or will the Boston Celtics give him his supermax contract after? knowing they have to pay Jason Tatum, who is going to demand another Supermax contract worth about $310 million. He will be the highest player, highest paid player in NBA history this offseason, especially what he did getting out of the second round. The way he did it in game number seven against the 76ers was absolutely extraordinary. 
51 points, record-setting. Breaking the record that Steph Curry just got in Game 7 against the Kings, and he does it in Game 7, and Game 6 at the end of that fourth quarter, too. Like, he was basically all him in that last four minutes, too. If you look at the NBA, and, and I, I will say this again, as good as Jalen Brown is and Jason Tatum is, if they can't win together... They're, they're going to have to decide if they, if they have to move on from one of those players. Because you're hearing, I'm hearing that if they give Jalen Brown a Supermax contract because of what he did this year, they're going to have to pay him $295 million. You're talking about two players that are going to demand $600 million of your cap. So I, I sit here today and I wonder if Boston doesn't win the NBA championship th- this year, do they decide to move on from Jalen Brown in the offseason? Do they decide to give or get more depth for Jalen Brown? Because they could get a slew of players. Jalen Brown is one of the better two-way players in the NBA right now. He is all, to me, he's all NBA defensively, and he's all NBA offensively. And I hated Jalen Brown when he was drafted. I remember when he was drafted. I was questioning Danny Ainge when he drafted him. And I don't care. I attack Jeff all the time, one of our callers that calls the show. I and he he told me for for years, Jalen Brown's going to be a great player. Jalen Brown's going to be a great player. He was right about that. He was right. I'm not afraid to say it. But I look at Boston right now, if they can, they had a Brogdon who's going to be six man of the year. And a lot of people predicted that if he stays healthy this year, he was a great pickup in the offseason for the Boston Celtics. And they didn't have to give up much to get him. So if Boston can't win with this team on this playoff run against this Miami team, and honestly, the Lakers, Denver's a good team. Denver's been the best team in the NBA. But they have they have parts of their team that you can question. The depth of their team throughout this throughout the playoffs, they've had problems coming off the bench offensively. And when Jokic isn't in the game, you could see that they have problems scoring. And also the Celtics, what's interesting is Danny Ainge was never the guy that made the big move. The Celtics fans are always questioning, besides the Hayward and Horford offseason in 2016, they were always saying, all right, when's this big move going to come? They were rumored for Anthony Davis before he went to the Lakers. They were rumored for, rumored for Carl Anthony Towns for a while. They had all these different links. Everybody's then, been rumored for Carl Anthony Towns. But they were one of the first ones at the time. When the, when the Timberwolves first had their shambles with Tom Thibodeau, the Celtics were one of the first teams that were linked to Carl Anthony Towns in 2019. When that team really fell apart, I think they ended up being the lottery team a couple years later drafting at the Edwards. Jimmy Butler, I mean not Jimmy, well Jimmy Butler when he was over there in Minnesota playing with Carl Anthony Towns and, and all that stuff was going on on and off the court with somebody's girlfriend and right. Jimmy Butler was messing with this guy's girlfriend, that guy's girlfriend. We, we've heard this before in the NBA, Derek Fisher. Yep, <laughs> Derek <laughs> Fisher did the same thing with Matt Barnes's uh, wife or his his ex wife, and it pissed him off, and it caused problems when he was coaching the Lakers. Was that the Mellow Garnett thing too? Was that was that uh, Garnett's ex wife or ex-girlfriend? no Tim Hardaway? He Tim was, Hardaway. Okay, he was messing with Tim Hardaway's girlfriend. Gotcha. Too as well, and we've heard this before. It's not this is not original. Like we've never heard this before, and I'm not bringing up coaches, and I don't really. This has nothing to do with the conversation we're having right now, but. This is the way the NBA is going. These Supermax contracts are extensively distinct. And I I look at right now, guys like, you know, with these contracts and these Supermax contracts, what changed the game 
was Steph Curry getting that Supermax contract a couple of years ago. Yeah, five years, 250 at the time. And now it's like even skyrocketed even further. I think he got a new extension for 300, but still. Like I mean, the- LeBron James, as good as he's been, he's been the be- second best player in NBA history. He's never made, he's never gotten a thir- $300 million contract. He took less to go to Miami. Right. Chris Bosh made the most money out of that because with his endorsements and uh, you know what, the way they advertise his products throughout the country, he is making more money off the court than he is on the court. So he doesn't really need that money. But when you're the best player in the world and you're the most talented player in the world for the last, I don't know, 15 years, you're going to make the money no matter where you play. And, again, and that's why. And the same thing with Jeff. I'll, I'll give Jeff credit on this one, too. The game has changed so much in professional sports. In the olden days, you want to play in a big marketplace. You want to play in New York. You want to play in L.A. You want to play in Chicago. You want to play in Miami. Now it doesn't matter where you play. Because no matter where you play, you're still going to get a shoe deal. You're still going to get the endorsements. You're still going to be able to make that money on and off the court. Because there's money to be made no matter what market you're playing in. And again, we've seen teams also avoid the drama of trying to bring in just the one max player and have it, like, if it's a borderline player, have it fail miserably. We saw that happen with the Pelicans. We saw that happen with the Chandler Parsons deal with with Dallas. Like, a lot of these other deals that really fell apart are Memphis. Uh, Mike Conley at the time when he signed that big contract with Memphis. I think teams are avoiding that kind of thing now, too. So as long as you can get the drama out of the uh, those organizations, like you saw with the Nets, like, you could avoid that kind of thing and still be able to build depth. And that's the decision teams like the Celtics are going to have to make. And now teams like the Sixers have already made, not bringing back James Harden. Ed, and I see Ed over here, Marola. He says LeBron is in a top form, maybe, or is he saying of all time? Yeah, are you saying all time or currently? Because it's a big difference. First of all, LeBron James is a top four player all time. It's not even an argument, first of all. He is going to have every, he has all the playoff records. He is going to have every regular season record. And yes, he's had a long season, but consistent, consistency and, and how healthy he has been for, for the remarkable part of his career is is the most amazing thing. And he says all time. All right, so, Ed, who are your top four of all time? Because uh, LeBron James... Who is better than him? Magic Johnson's not better than LeBron James. No. Everybody puts him there. Larry Bird is not better than LeBron James. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbard, you can argue, but he's not better than LeBron James. Who? Who's better than LeBron James? LeBron James has been the face of basketball since Michael Jordan retired. In 2004, 2003, 2004, when LeBron James was drafted by the Cavaliers as the number one pick, the King, and I I used to make fun of that name because anybody that gets the name the King always fails. Who was the last King that came into professional sports that really didn't develop into the player or the superstar that everybody thought he was going to become? Also because of the hype factor, too. Like, it's Sports Illustrated article for a teenager. It's insane. Do you remember the baseball pitcher? No, I don't. Plays for Seattle? Plays for Seattle. Oh, Play- Felix Hernandez. Felix Hernandez. I didn't realize he had that much hype. Okay. They called him the king. He came into the league. They, he was the king. Did Felix Hernandez ever win a championship? No. He did win a Cy Young, and, and yes, he was one of the best pitchers in the majors for four or five years, but couldn't stay healthy. He had no right to get the name the king. How about Henrik Lundqvist? Did yep. he ever win a championship? Unfortunately, no. So... How do you call a player a king if he's never been on top of the world? Hmm. How do you call them king? Uh, Ed also says, yeah, but he couldn't do it by himself. Not many players do it by themselves. First of all, (laughs) Michael Jordan couldn't do it by himself. Yeah. Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player to ever play the game. Michael Jordan couldn't do it without Scottie Pippen. 
He couldn't have done it without Dennis Rodman. I'm sorry, Michael Jordan was the best player, best athlete I've ever seen. He couldn't have won without another player playing beside him. Mario Lemieux. Do you think Mario Lemieux would have won a championship without Yarmir Yager? Right. Wayne Gretzky. Do you think he would have ever won a championship without Messier? Or, uh, I don't know, Paul Coffey? Curry, yeah. Uh, any one of these guys. Yari Curry? No. You need a, you need a, you need a Robin to your, you being Batman. Or you need a Justice League. Okay? The thing about, and first of all, Snug, he is not called the king. People call Brady the goat, okay? That, that's different, the greatest of all time. And by the way, uh, if you remember where the word goat came from, LL Cool J, just so everybody knows. And also, he only got claimed that now. He wasn't hyped as that, as a guy that was a six-round pick. I, I just think when, when you're trying to compare and contrast certain players and, and, and certain decades, okay? LeBron James is a great player. LeBron James could have played in the 90s. Could have played in, he could have definitely played in the 80s because of his body type and the way he plays the game. But could have he could he have stayed healthy as much as he has in the, in that time like he has this time, and he, he has been hurt in in certain types, uh, certain time of the year over the last couple of years. No question that he has. But his first ten years, he has been he was healthy his first ten years really, and that that's because of his the way his body is built and the way he trains in the off season. But the way they played in the NBA in the nineties and the eighties, LeBron or Steph Curry wouldn't have been as dominant as they they are now. In those days, they would have been great players. But I don't know if LeBron in the playoffs is going to average 33 points a game in his career. No way. The game was different. Three point, the three-point shot wasn't as big as it is now. The game has changed. Thank you, Steph Curry. Mm-hmm. And maybe, remember, LeBron, for like maybe the first three, four years of his career, wasn't a great three-point shooter at all. So maybe he would have never developed that thing at all. That's going to take off points off your game. Probably two or three per game in terms of the larger total. Again... No player in any sport except maybe tennis, golf, swimming can do it by themselves. You need a team around you. You need players around you to help you get to that 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 place of being a champion. Tom Brady was a great player. Does Tom Brady win those championships without Bill Belichick? Right. Does Tom Brady win those championships without the, the defense that he had in most of those years, that secondary that was dominant almost every single year, that running game that has always been good when they went to the playoffs, the James Whites, the, the any one of them. You can name all of them. The entire history of tight ends. Corey Dillon, <laughs> yeah. if you go with the tight ends that he's had. Gronkowski, probably the greatest ever play. You can argue he is. Even Aaron Hernandez, I don't want to mention his name, but he was a fantastic player when he played in the league. Yeah, he had two good ones before that, too. Ben Coates and Ben Watson, too. They weren't the best in the league, but they were still good. They were and, still top of the league. And Ben Watson had a long career. Yeah. He, played, he played with so many great quarterbacks over the years. He played with Drew Brees. He played with Aaron Rodgers. He played with Brett Favre. I'm just saying, you can't do it yourself in any, uh, any sport except the single sports. Like I said, golf, tennis, and those type of sports. 
And again, it's understandable to think that, all right, you're going to blame one guy for not being able to win by himself in basketball because basketball probably, in terms of the four major sports, team sports, probably has the least control, most controllable aspects. Like football, hockey, baseball has a lot more like unconventional things that could happen. But still, none of these guys win by themselves. Like you want to criticize LeBron because he had to bring in a super team. Yes, it was theatrical the way he did it at the time with the whole ESPN announcement. Uh, We're going to win not one, not two, not three. Fine. You want to criticize him for that? Okay. That doesn't take away from his accomplishments and also the longevity for somebody his age right now is absolutely it's incredible. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It really is. What is he? 36, 37? Yeah. He's playing in his West another Western Conference final. How many how many fine Eastern or Western Conference finals has he been? 13. 13. How many years has he played? 17? Uh, about, tw- about 20 now. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever the number yeah. is. I don't know. I, I I haven't looked it up, but it's close to 20. So just think, 13 out of the 20 years he's played in the NBA, that's only seven years he has not played in the Western or Eastern Conference Finals. That is unbelievable. And this team was a seven seed this year that almost missed the playoffs. Unbelievable. Now, I, I am not a big LeBron James f- uh, fan off the court. I, I think he's he's too he's gotten too into the politics and, and being – who he is on and off the court, I don't like it. He uses this platform to take it to another level. I, I, but as a player, you can't argue his talent. When LeBron James retires, you'll have a chance to tell your kids, I had the chance to see LeBron James play. There's a lot of people like you, Speedy, that never could remember Michael Jordan as a player. A lot of you guys don't realize how good Michael Jordan was. How fantastic Michael Jordan was as a player. And you could just watch clips. Oh, I've seen clips. Clips don't sell you what Michael Jordan was and how he dominated the game. You can hear it from players. Shaquille O'Neal, Charles Barkley, any one of Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, every one of those guys will tell you. Michael Jordan is the greatest athlete they've ever seen play in any sport. We're going to have one on in about 45 minutes to play it against Michael Jordan a lot in the playoffs. Uh, Ed also says, I agree, but when he ran to form a super team, and that's what ran his course. He ran back to Cleveland to join Kyrie and Kevin Love. But Kevin Love was traded over For, there, first too. First of all, first of all, first of all, he did not run back to Cleveland. Cleveland wanted him back. He didn't have to go to Cleveland. He could have stayed in Miami and won Probably two or three more championships with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. He could have. He decided that he wanted to give Cleveland a championship. Cleveland, in all their sports, haven't won since the, what, 50s? Yeah, the Browns of the 50s that really bought their teams at that time. Honestly, LeBron James wanted to go back to Cleveland to help his team, his city, where he is from, bring home a championship. The Cleveland Indians haven't won a championship, what, in 75 years? 1948. The Browns haven't won a championship since the 50s. Yep. And then obviously, they went, from, they went to Baltimore, then they became an expansion team. With, with players, and you try to compare and contrast players through other sports, I understand what you have seen. I don't know how old you are, Ed. But if you're in your 20s, none of you guys know how good Larry Bird really was. Nobody remembers Hakeem Olajuwon when he was at the prime of his career. People make fun 
of what I talk about and how I speak about Clyde the Glide Drexler and why I think Clyde was a, a close to a tw- top 12, top 13 player of all time. And I, yes, I would take him over Kobe Bryant, as crazy as you might think I am. How do you know if you never saw Clyde play? It's, it's a different game now. Basketball, sports, hockey, baseball, boxing, MMA. It's changed. It's different. They're trying to make the game more offensively. Offensive. Why? Because where there's more offense, there's more fans. There's more jersey sales. There's more hat sales. There's more endorsements. They want to see points. That's why the league has changed in all the leagues and the way they're selling their product now. It also says they the dominant players around him in that era, but if they didn't have Kyrie and Kevin Love, he didn't go there. Yeah, but Kevin Love was also traded there at the draft, too. Like, they didn't know at the time, unless there was some kind of tampering involved. Ed, let me ask you a question. And everybody likes to compliment Kyrie because he was the guy that hit the big three-point shot against the Golden State Warriors in that record-breaking year when they knocked off the Golden State Warriors. If you remember that game, who had, the, who had the block of the game with the last, what, minute and 30 seconds left? Who went to the line when Draymond Green slammed him on his ass and shoot those two very important foul shots because they were only up by one? Who did that? I'll tell you who did that. That was LeBron James. Who defended Steph Curry with the last three minutes of the game to help them win? against the record-breaking Golden State Warriors. LeBron James, who played 48 minutes in that game. LeBron James! What a near 50-point triple-double in Game 6, LeBron James. Back-to-back triple-doubles! The only player that did that in NBA history? Shaquille O'Neal in the finals. That's the difference. I'm not saying there weren't as good of players in the league like LeBron James. But what LeBron James has done over the last, I don't know, two decades has been dominant. And no, he will never be Michael Jordan. Never. You heard it from me, and anybody that tries to compare him to Michael Jordan is an idiot. What's special about Michael Jordan, he never, never talked about politics to anybody on and off the court. He talked basketball. That's all he ever wanted to talk about. No matter how big of a moneymaker he was in endorsements, car deals, golf courses, shoe deals, Michael Jordan never talked about the money that he made and what he was as a player off the court and how liberal he got. He never talked about uh, any politics or religion off the court. LeBron James has changed the game by doing that because he is one of the most outspoken athletes we've ever heard in professional sports. And yes, and it's affected the game, not just basketball, all of sports, a.k.a. Colin Kaepernick. These guys use the platform now to not only sell their product, to sell their crap. What makes the game so special over the years is they hated each other. When you saw Larry Bird play Magic Johnson, they hated each other for years until they became friends at the end of their career. They hated each other. Probably the Olympic team was probably the first time, oh, we have to actually uh, play with each other. (laughs) Michael Jordan still hates Isaiah Thomas and Bill Lambeer. 
It took him. Scottie Pippen didn't want, did not want Dennis Rodman when they brought him in 93-94. When, when Phil Jackson went to Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan said, will he help us win? If he's going to help us win, you, you, if you can handle him, bring him in. When he went to Scottie, he says, I want no part of Dennis Rodman. Because over the years when they played, when, when the Bulls played Detroit, when, when Scottie was young, Dennis Rodman was fouling him and punching him and smacking him and tripping him. He hated Dennis Rodman. They had to learn how to get along on the court. That was the game of basketball, even in hockey. Everybody hated Wayne Gretzky in the 80s and the 90s because he was so damn good. But as the league has changed and the game has changed, you see less fighting. These guys love each other. The competition is what sells the sports over the years. Now, I said this on the show a couple of weeks ago. I said it last week. These youngsters, they don't even like teams anymore. Yeah. They don't. It's players. Fantasy sports. I'm telling you, go to 10. Go to 20 youngsters from the ages of 5 and older. And you ask them, who's your favorite? what's your favorite basketball team? The first thing that comes out of their mouth is a player. Yep. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. You came to me, Jeff, uh, even Speedy, it's a past your generation. You go to anybody over the ages of, I would say, 32 and older, and you went to them and you asked them, who's your favorite basketball team? I would say 90% of them will tell you a basketball team. 90% of them. I'm not going to sit here and say, everybody ask me, who's my favorite, who was my favorite basketball player? If I give you a name, you probably think I was crazy. You know what my favorite basketball player was in the 90s when I was so deeply in love with basketball? Charles Oakley. Charles Oakley. He wasn't even a top 100 player in the NBA. Do you know who my favorite hockey player was growing up? John Van Beesbrook. And if you don't know hockey, even though he was a great American player, you would probably tell me, out of all the goalies that you're rooting for, why would you pick John Van Beesbrook? I look at the game when I was a kid differently. It was a team sport. Dominance of a player meant nothing to me. Now, it's all about endorsements. These players, Julius Randle, you see when he doesn't get the ball, he has pouting, he's crying, he doesn't even, when he was booed, when everybody was screaming MVP two years ago on the season that he had, and then all of a sudden, were booing him last year at the end of the season because he sucked, and he was talking, and then they interviewed him at the end of the game, and he said, he, he practically told the fans to go F themselves. And he didn't celebrate R.J. Barrett's accolades, that one like game-winning shot he had or something like that, too. Like, really? I'm just speaking the truth. These players are all about themselves. It's me, me, me. It's not team, team, team. And all these old coaches, Larry Brown being one of them, Coach K in NCAA, Duke, you go up and down, Phil Jackson, team. The triangle offense is all about teamwork. Pat Riley, his way of playing, teamwork. Jeff Van Gundy, Stan Van Gundy. You go L- Lenny Wilkins, 
Go look at the old coaches of the 90s and the, and the 80s. It was all about team, not one player. As good as Michael Jordan was, as dominant as Michael Jordan was, Michael Jordan wouldn't be the player he was without the team, without Scottie Pippen, without Dennis Rodman, without Luke Longley, John Paxton, Steve Kerr, Ron Harper. We could go on and on. Tony Kukoc. You, you go back and you, you can argue whatever you want. And that's, what's, that's what bothers me about these youngsters now in sports. And I, I'm sorry because when you look at statistics, and I am a stat guy. I always look at stats to compare years and years of the game. Stats are very important. But it's hard to compare the stats of a running back in the 90s. And the stats of a running back now. And why? Because then you can hold, you can pull on jerseys, you can do certain things in in the game of football that you can't do anymore. It's become more offensively played than defensively played. In the 90s, it was all those dominant defenses. In the 80s, all those dominant defenses, the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Oakland Raiders, the Chicago Bears. The New York Jets. The New York Giants. The Buffalo Bills. You look at the game now. You look at the Jets right now. The two players everybody talks about their defense. Sauce Gardner and Quinn Williams. You can't win without playing and having a dominant all-around defense. That's why I look at All these me players now in the game and these youngsters, they don't understand. You're never going to be the team or the championship team you want your team to be if the team doesn't play like a team. And that's the problem with somebody like James Harden that we were talking about earlier. One of the bigger me players in the league. Kyrie Irving, one of the bigger me players in the league. And it has resulted in nothing but drama and no team success unless you have some kind of stabilizer. Like James Harden in OKC had those stabilizers. Kyrie Irving had LeBron James. Since he left LeBron James, he is a clown, a dramatic guy. And you're not going to get those types of winners without some type of team components in the game. Now, I'm not saying you have to have all these all-world coaches. Golden State wins with Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr is not supposed to be thought of in the legacy-type coaches, and the same kind of thing with LeBron, like none of the coaches he played with. He played with Eric Spolstra when Eric Spolstra was kind of a good but not, like, amazing coach. He's a better coach now. Like, you still need some kind of team components and leadership, and that's what these guys bring, and that's what these other NBA players don't. Now let's get into some baseball, because I know everybody can't wait for us to attack Domingo Harmon. Okay, and Domingo Herman was found with another substance on his finger. He is now suspended for 10 games. The first time he was caught, they they obviously shrugged it off. That's the first time I've ever seen it. So if you want to say that the Yankees are cheating or finding a way to cheat because Domingo Herman is cheating. And I yes, I know he abused his wife and I know the whole background. I don't want Domingo Herman as a Yankee fan. And I'll tell you straight out, Domingo Herman is a horrible person. Horrible. But with all the Yankees injuries, they need Domingo Haman because they can't stay healthy. They signed Carlos Rodon in the offseason. The guy hasn't pitched one regular season game yet. We might not even see him this year. It says late June now is the earliest he'll come back. It's ridiculous. And I understand. 
with the way the league is transitioning and changing with the new rules, the new bags on, on the field, and, and now the pitch clock and all that other stuff. And over the years with the Houston Astros and the Boston, Boston Red Sox and even the New York Yankees and the Chicago Cubs over the years for being caught cheating, everybody thinks there's a way, if there's a will, there's a way of cheating. The Blue Jays manager, John Schneider, said it was odd that Aaron Judge would be looking towards the Blue Jays' dugout and ultimately accusing Judge for stealing signs. Judge ultimately homered during that at-bat on a 3-2 and two pitch, leading to more controversy. Aaron Boone got ejected in the game to with the Yankees up 6 nothing in the eighth inning. Blue Jays reliever Jay Jackson admitted to tipping some pitches during his at-bat against Judge. Domingo Herman, the next game, was also ejected for another sticky substance of violation. Umpire James Hoy confirmed Herman had a substance that was tackier than pitching rosin on his pitching hand. Uh, Herman was ultimately suspended for 10 games, which he did not appeal. Herman started serving that suspension yesterday. Herman had a 1.64 ERA in May after having a 5.54 ERA in April. Okay? I do not believe it's just the Yankees being caught. Matt Scherzer was just caught with his sticky substance. Now, do I think Max Scherzer should have been suspended? No. I don't. I don't. And this sticky, this sticky substance, this has been going on in baseball for years. People have used Vaseline, snot, spit. How many times? I've heard this from my grandfather, who was a great baseball player. He said if they could put crap on a ball, they would. I don't understand. I understand that's an advantage. But this has been going on in baseball for years. And there's going to be a new substance that will come out that nobody knows about yet. And it's going to keep happening and happening because there's more technology available. I think with everything going on with the Yankees, everybody's trying to point their fingers at them. Uh, They are no longer the evil empire. The Yankees haven't won a championship since 2009. So for all the people that think that the Yankees have been cheating, these Goldilocks balls, because Aaron Judge, he's been on a tear for home runs, which I think is a crock, okay? These Goldilocks ball things that, there was a story coming out last year that the Yankees were getting Goldilocks balls. They, They did have special balls for Aaron Judge when he broke, I think it was like 48 home runs they started Changing the balls. Right, which was like late August or something Okay, like it wasn't going on all season long. I don't care what anybody was writing, what the league is saying. I don't believe that story. Okay? And until proven, I don't believe it. But this rosin thing, this sticky substance, this spider tap, which all of you guys were attacking Garrett Cole last season, and he had a terrible season. But guess what? He led the league in strikeouts. He also gave the most home runs. Now all of a sudden, he's having a great season. Maybe he's 100% healthy. And oh my God, he hasn't been caught with spider tap, but he's cheating. I'm telling you, he found another substance, but nobody's found it. It's a crock. The Yankees have been fighting injury after injury after injury all season long. And I'm not sticking up for the Yankees because the Yankees aren't winning a World Series this year. 
And again, it's one of those things, like I mentioned with Max Scherzer when he did it. Like, it looks really bad when Herman's doing it not only a second time, but also amidst all those injuries, too. Garrett Cole is the one consistent, healthy pitcher, and he's been fantastic. But the Yankees have all these injuries. You know that you're pitching well right now. Why would you ever try to take that kind of chance with whatever substance you're trying to do when the Yankees are in that kind of situation, especially in the division they're in, too? They're in fourth place in a very good AL East, probably a record-setting division for baseball standards at this point in the season right now. Will it stay that way? I don't know. But regardless, you cannot take those kinds of chances in those kinds of situations when you're already a pitcher that's kind of on the borderline, too, as it is. And when these guys get healthy, you might be losing your spot in the rotation if this keeps up, too, because there's no guarantee Herman is already that kind of pitcher. He's had small stretches of it in his career that's been great, but there's also been some downsides, too, and like you said, so many other issues. Aaron Judge, if you look at his numbers, his numbers are practically where they should be. Aaron Judge at this time last year, 135 at-bats to 125 this year. At this time last year, he had 46 hits. He has 34. At this time last year, he had 16 home runs. He has 11 right now. At this time last year, he was batting 275. He's batting 272. At this time last year, he had 36 RBIs. He has 26 RBIs this year. And last year, he had two stolen bases at this time. He's got three right now. What is the difference here? If Aaron Judge had 25 home runs right now, and he has 50 RBIs, then there's something to argue about. His slugging right now, his 584 last year was 563. OPS last year was 958. It's 961. What is his on-base percentage is 377 right now. Career, 377 career is 394. Last year at this time was 382. What is the difference? Because he was looking towards the Blue Jays, um, looking at the manager or whatever, the play, I don't know what they're doing over there, calling signals and signs over there in a dugout. He's cheating? Man, he could have saw a bird. He could have saw, saw a fan get, flipping in the finger. Maybe he was watching Zach Gallon throw a, a baseball at a bird like he did yesterday. <laughs> And it's so funny, Snug and Jeff love calling, uh, like calling Garrett Cole Kermit, which I think is ridiculous. I If he was a Red Sox right now, they wouldn't be calling him Kermit. They wouldn't be calling him Kermit. They, they would love him. They would adore him. It's a joke. I sit here right now, and for anybody to accuse somebody when he has not been suspended, he has not been fined. Baseball's looked into this. It happened Monday. It's been 72 hours. Baseball, definitely watch a video. I'm sure the Blue Jays management reached out to the MLB and complained about this. If they found anything or they saw anything, don't you think they would have fined the Yankees? Don't you think they would have suspended Aaron Judge? They didn't. Because it doesn't exist. Also, think about it the way it happened, too. Because in order to see some kind of signal that would be from a dugout... That would have happened naturally. That wouldn't have happened on any kind of technological devices. Why did the Astros get caught cheating? Because they were using technological devices. Jose Altuve had the attached buzzer. They were using sounds with the trash cans. And that people accused the Red Sox of the same thing. Why did the, I forget the kid's name on the Pirates. Why did he get caught uh, when he was running the bases? He had a cell phone in his pocket. That's all technology. Yeah, the Yankees got caught with technology with the whole uh, Apple Watches thing a couple of years ago. Fine. You want to accuse them for that? Sure. 
Aaron Judge is looking at the dugout. That is natural sign stealing. Like, the natural, you're going to ban all natural sign stealing because of that, too? That's been existing in the game for a while. He's Pre- not Alex Rodriguez. He's not standing at third base or second base looking and, and, and telling and giving signs over there to the dugout what's coming up next. He's This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And I understand baseball is trying to find ways and trying to hide ways of cheating. Guess what? It's been going on forever. And again, unless the Blue Jays have some kind of like traitor in the dugout holding up Aaron Judge signs because I don't know what they're going to despise their team. That's a whole different story. If that's the case, he should be investigated too, whoever that player is. And again, the odds of that being the issue, a technological device, some kind of sound signal from the Blue Jays dugout is not likely. Okay, you have a fan in the stands that's giving you relay signals like like what the Astros did. Okay, if that's the case, okay, fine. But the odds of that are not likely either in a crowd that was the Blue Jays crowd, keep in mind. And also, just a loud stadium in general, that's going to be hard for those kinds of things to happen that way electronically. So it just doesn't make a lot of sense, like just probability wise of anything that could happen for why Aaron Judge would have been caught in that situation. I think when you look at this season and it's early, there's a lot of baseball left and it's not even warm out today. I think right now uh, it's 48 degrees throughout the day today. I think at its max, I think it was 59 degrees where in what now? It, we're at the end of May. We're in the middle of May. We're going to the end of May. It's June. It's usually really humid right now, really warm. And then you, you start to see balls you know, gliding out right now. But you're not. You're not seeing as many home runs. They opened up the game. Obviously, no more, uh, no more uh, shifting. Call it? shifting anymore in baseball, which everybody thought was going to open up the game. It has helped some hitters. It's helped Joey Gallo this year. It's helped Anthony Rizzo when he does actually play. But it hasn't helped offensively with baseball. As a matter of fact, the offensive numbers right now in baseball is down. So why? Why did everybody complain in the offseason that there was no more shifting? We've had how many baseball players on this show over the last couple of months? Well, three professional baseball players in the league right now. Mm -hmm. MLB players. And they all told us. Every one of them said... Shift, no shifting is perfect. It helps the game. It opens up the game offensively. Has it done it yet? No. Maybe because it's cold. Maybe it's because it's windy. Maybe it was a, it was a really short winter. So we're, we're going to have an extended summer one way or another in August and September and October. But right now, the offensive numbers, go look at the numbers last year and look at the numbers this year. They are down. I think the biggest trend with baseball right now is because of these new rule changes, too. The young teams are striving quicker right now, too. You're looking at a team like the Pirates overperforming to start this season. A team like the Diamondbacks overperforming to start this season, too. Now, obviously, there's going to be the teams that were powerhouses in the ALEs, like the Orioles and the Rays and the Yankees are still playing well. The Yankees, even amidst all those injuries, Toronto. Like, these teams are all good, too. But they're all surprise teams, too, and they're all young. And Snug's being funny because he says, nah, it was 85 degrees. Snug, where do you live? You live in Sacramento. Okay, mm-hmm. L.A., Florida, Texas, it's hot. I'm talking about the North teams, North teams, the East Coast teams, Philadelphia. It was 50 degrees today. Now, uh, Washington was 58 degrees today. New York was 58, 59 degrees today at its max. Michigan was 50 degrees today. We go up and down. Cincinnati was 50 degrees today. You could go to all these East and North teams. It's still cold. as And everybody knows, as it gets warmer and humid out, the ball starts to drive more. 
So and it helps pitchers too because pitchers be able to they they actually grip the ball better and throw the ball better. So pitching numbers actually go up after it gets warm outside. And at the same time, I was talking about the young teams doing well. Who are most of the underperforming teams? Uh, teams up north, besides besides the Padres, they're the only southern one. But teams up north that are in the colder cl- climates right now that don't have that type of pitching. You look at pretty much the entire American League Central, besides the Twins, have all been down this year. I mean, the Tigers and Royals weren't supposed to be great, but Cleveland's bad. The White Sox are awful. And a, and then you look at a team like the Mets. You look at a team like the Cardinals. They're hitting. They're winning now, but they were really struggling pitching to start the year. All those are like up north, colder weather teams that haven't gotten it going yet with their pitching. The Mets called up infielder Mark Vientos on Wednesday and hit his first home run uh, of the season in his MLB debut against the Rays yesterday. At AAA Syracuse, Vientos hit 333 with 13 home runs and 37 RBIs with a a .416 on base percentage and a 1.104 OPS. Vientos is the third prospect the Mets have called up within the last month after calling up Brett Beatty and Francisco Alvarez in mid-April. The Mets are also likely to call up former Yankees catcher Gary Sanchez, who they signed to a minor league deal on May 9th after being waived by the Giants. Sanchez can opt out of his minor league deal and go back to free agency if the Mets don't call him up by tomorrow. Last year, with the Twins, Sanchez hit .205 with 16 home runs, 61 RBIs, with a .282 on base percentage. In his last year with the Yankees in 2021, Sanchez hit 204 with 23 home runs, 54 RBIs, with a .307 on base percentage. If the Mets get... 18 home runs from Sanchez and 60-some-I-RBIs, that, boys and girls, would probably be the best numbers uh, a Mets catcher has had in 20 years. Since Mike Piazza. Okay? So if the Mets get, even if he hits 205, catchers don't hit by average. I think the best catcher right now, as far as average is concerned, is Real Muto, who's hitting 272. I am telling you right now, you will not see a catcher hit 272 the way Rio Muto does that averagely every single year. It doesn't happen. Mostly, if you're a top catcher, you look at guys like Mike Piazza, they are a dime a dozen. Johnny Bench, you don't find those guys. Pudge Rodriguez, it's very hard. Buster Posey, to find these hitting catchers that are good defensively, and great offensively. They're either good one way and bad the other. If you have a catcher that can hit for average and be okay, maybe subpar at best as a catcher, and you're getting 16, 18 home runs and 60 semi, 70 RBS, right now, Gary Sanchez would be a Yankee if the fans didn't kill him. Gary Sanchez would be a Yankee. The fans hated the fact he was hitting 205 or career. He was, I think, a career hitter with the Yankees, 210, 211. And struck out a ton and didn't have a good on base percentage. Everybody either. on the Yankees strikes out. Yep. They're a power hitting team, the Bronx Bombers. I, I don't understand it. it it's so funny. It, it is so funny when you, when you look at teams that have so much power in their lineup and you think that they're not going to strike out. It took a long time for Aaron Judge to figure out how not to be a strikeout hitter. 
Last year, his strikeout numbers have dipped. Why? Because he's not chasing balls. And he walked a ton, too. And he's figured out as a hitter that if you sit back and you let them pitch against you, you're going to be able to see the ball better. This is baseball, guys. I, I don't, and I, I'll go back and forth, and we can argue, and I can make jokes about this for years, okay? I just named five of the best catchers of this generation, okay? Five. Could you tell me right now, honestly, if, if, and I don't care if you know baseball or you don't, could you name five catchers right now in the majors? Honestly. Because I'm a, I'm a sports fan, and I can tell you this. If I didn't know baseball like I do, I couldn't name five. You know why? Because there's not many good ones. It's a fluky position, just like relief pitchers. It's the same there's kind of thing. There's not many good ones. Mm-hmm. There's not many consistently good ones year to year either. You talked about Real Muto being one of them. And a lot of the other ones that have played well this year have emerged this year. Somebody like Sean Murphy on the Braves that have played very well this year. He had some good numbers with Oakland, but never was this good. And then Adley Rushman, who's his second-year player with the Orioles, probably having the best year out of catcher so far. And, and to go back with the Mets with the whole Buck Showalter thing, the problem with Buck... And it's always been his problem. He doesn't play young players. He has problems playing young players. I don't know why, but Buck doesn't trust his young players. He is a veteran-bound type of manager. Same thing with Tom Thibodeau. I can name a bunch of New York managers over the years. Joe Torre was just like that. Besides Derek Jeter, he played veteran players. Wade Boggs, Charlie Hayes, Scott Brocious, Tino Martinez, Paul O'Neill. We can go on and on and on and on. If you have a way of doing things and you found a way to win that way, that's different. Buck Showalter has never won. He's never managed in a World Series. So one way or another, if you're a manager and you know your style has not worked and it didn't work last year in your first year as a manager for the New York Mets, don't you think... Changing it around. You have three young prospects that can hit. Vientos being one of them. He played for the first time in his career in the major leagues yesterday. And he had a home run. Against the best team in baseball. Brett Beatty had, there was no reason why the Mets sent him down after the preseason, spring training. Okay? You know why? Because he had the best batting average out of any Met in spring training. It didn't make any sense. And I don't want to hear, well, that, that they're saving him so they, they, they make sure that they have him for five years when he becomes a full-time player. That's a cr- bunch of crap. When you have one, the richest mat, you have the richest owner in baseball, an Uncle Stevie, it doesn't matter if he plays now or he plays later. You also can't do that with everybody either because... Yes, there are going to be some contracts you're going to want to have to save, especially if you're a high payroll team like the Mets, because you want extra year of eligibility when these other guys are going to be making more money. But the Mets situation is different because most of their guys are shorter contracts, big money. Besides Lindor, a lot of these hitters that they brought in are four-year deals, three-year deals, or in the case of Cannon and Escobar, two-year deals. The pitchers, Furlander and Scherzer, both three-year deals, now two left for Scherzer, but still... 
you don't have to deal with that right kind of thing right now where you're going to hinder somebody else's development. It's not like you have this stellar third baseman that was standing in the way. You don't have somebody like Austin Riley holding you back or Manny Machado. That's different. Eduardo Escobar is a average third baseman. There's no reason that that should be the case. He can play other positions. You can't bring him off the bench. There's no reason for that. And same kind of thing with Vientos, who's now a third baseman, can also play first, can play all over the infield. There's no reason with those kinds of numbers they should have waited this long. The Stanley Cup Finals has been, to me, the best in sports. When it comes to winning a title, hockey is the best. Everybody keeps talking about the Super Bowl and how it's the biggest and the most watched game in all of sports. That one day, millions and millions of dollars are made through endorsements and and advertisements. I, I still don't understand why hockey isn't appreciated as much as all the other sports. When you watch these games, the dedication, the just the, the the pain and agony some of these players go through throughout, and watching some of these teams, like Florida. Florida has no business being in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Carolina Hurricanes. And Carolina right now, everybody thinks, is a foregone conclusion that they're going, they're going to win the Stanley Cup the way everything is matched up for them this year. The Golden Knights, everybody's, oh, look how talented their team is. Blah, 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 blah. And, 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 and Oilers, everybody thought this was their year because of everything, how it, everything fell together in the Western Conference. But it's the Golden Knights and the Stars. And I thought the Krakens were going to come out in that series against the Stars, and they pulled it out the last two games of that series. That's hockey. And if you look at all four of these teams, Bobrovsky is probably the best goalie out, out of all of them. And this is a guy that's failed to win at Stanley Cup. And a guy that's making $10 million and really had to prove himself to even get to that point, too. Cause and that the, couldn't stay healthy all season. Right. Florida had drafted Spencer Knight, and he had to take a leave of absence this year. Had a lot of uh, family issues and stuff like that. Like, he could have taken over that spot pretty easily, but he left, and Bobrovsky really took his place. They had the third string play for a little while. Then he struggled. Bobrovsky said, all right, I'm just going to will this team. It, it's, it's fun to watch. And... Everybody expects Rob Brindamore finally to take this team to a Stanley Cup Finals. He's never done it. He's been there how long? How long has he been with Carolina? I think since 2018. So it's been almost five years. And he's never coached a Stanley Cup Finals team. And Rob Brindamore, if you remember him, he played for the Pittsburgh Penguins. He played for the Philadelphia Flyers. This guy has won Stanley Cups as a player. But he also played with Mario Lemieux and Mark Recchi and Yarmir Yager. I can name those teams. He played with a lot of great teams. And I, you, you saw what he's seen did, his son did in Quinnipiac winning a championship, a national championship with Quinnipiac. If Rob Brindamore did not go to the Stanley Cup or does not go to the Stanley Cup Finals this year, does Carolina keep him for another year? Because I've said this with coaches in all sports. You can, some of these coaches could take you as far as they can take you. We, uh, Elaine Vignon. Yeah. Remember him? Remember uh-huh. with the Canucks? He took them all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals and then never got there again. Then he goes... Then he goes to the Rangers. He takes them all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals. He never goes there again. Now, he went to Philadelphia. He never took them to the Stanley Cup Finals, but he took them to the playoffs, and then they never go there again. He also won a President's Trophy with the Canucks and then lost to the first round of the Kings. Coaches can take you as far as they can take you. You can have the least talented team in hockey, but if you have a hot goalie, and you have a hot goal scorer, 
you can win. We've seen this before. It doesn't matter how talented you are on paper. Edmonton has the two best players in the world. It's not even close. Dreisaitl and McDavid are by far the best players in the world. And you even saw it in that series that they lost against the Golden Knights. I mean, I, I think Dreisaitl had seven or eight goals in that series. Just that series. Yeah, McDavid had three or four. <laughs> like, I think 75% of the Oilers' goals in the first four games. Combined in yeah. that series, they had like 14 goals. It's ridiculous. That's how good they are. But they, it don't matter how good the player. If you have two great players, if your team's not playing well, you're not going to win. If you don't have a good goalie like Skinner, you're not going to win. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier, like why fans don't appreciate the NHL playoffs for the same way. It, was, it goes back to what I said earlier about controllable aspects versus uncontrollable aspects in sports. Like the NBA, like the NBA has these guys that can control the game more. Two guys that can control the game. You can win that way. You can't do that kind of thing in hockey, like you were saying with the Oilers, with teams like the Maple Leafs that have failed for years in the playoffs too, that are an offensive Has flash. anybody seen the movie Slapshot? Mm-hmm. Remember what happens at the end of the movie? Remember? He undresses himself, yeah, yeah. and he takes everybody's eyes off the game and just watch this guy skate around the ice and strip. Okay? Yeah, classic. Does everybody remember that? Okay, so when you watch sports, okay, and when you see something that you've never seen before, all right, you see something like, wow, did you see that? That stands out more than winning the Stanley Cup. Honestly. All right. 97. Who won the Stanley Cup? Detroit, I believe. Detroit? Are you sure about that? I'm not 100% sure. but I'm I could sure. tell you in 96 what happened in the Stanley Cup finals. Oh, yeah. The Florida one. Yes. The Florida one. Yeah. Why? Why? Why did that stick out? Because John Van Beesburg got so hot in that, that playoff run that he took an expansion team. A team that's only been around for four years when they were brought into the league in 93-94, he took an expansion team to the Stanley Cup Finals against the great Patrick Waugh, that stacked team with Claude Lemieux and Joe Sackick and Peter Forsberg and Adam Foote. Remember that? Yui Krupp, the ex-Islander. I remember that. That stuck out to me. And you want to know something? I remember that championship more than I, I remember from 97 on. Why? Because an expansion team went to the Stanley Cup Finals when they had no business being there. And that's what stands out. The little things stand out in all professional sports. Right now, what stands out in this series against Carolina? What stands out? That a Florida Panther team that squeaked into the playoffs. They were the final wild card team. Nobody thought they were going to knock out the arguably the greatest regular season hockey team in NHL history. The Boston Bruins that had a, a record break at what, 136 points? Yeah. A, a year after they were the President's Trophy winning team too and they lost in the second round. Did anybody, did anybody believe they were going to knock off the Boston Bruins and then knock off the Toronto Maple Leafs with all the moves? And acquisitions they made at the trade deadline, not a chance in hell. Okay? That's what sticks out in the playoffs right now. Not the fact that the Golden Knights have a chance to go to the Stanley Cup Finals, which they're an expansion team. They've only been around for, what, six years? 
another team like the Florida Panthers, who, by the way, this Golden Knights team actually went to a Stanley Cup final, I think their first or second year. Year one. They lost against Washington, but they went, they made it and they like coasted the whole way, pretty much. Or the Dallas Stars, who's been in the Stanley Cup, I think, two years ago. Yeah, the Hub City year. They lost to Tampa. Nobody cares. You know what sticks out? The Florida Panthers. That's it. Yep. And if Florida wins the Stanley Cup, people will remember this championship more than any other championships the last two or three years. The greatest underdog mm-hmm. ever do it. Because people want to see something special. You want to say whatever you want about Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was must-see. Every single time he played in the playoffs. And Chris Childs will tell us that he played against Michael Jordan. He knows a lot about Michael Jordan. And we are, we're going to bring him in in just a few moments. When you watch something special, it don't matter if you're playing against them, you're watching them on TV, or you're at the game eating your popcorn. You'll always remember them or remember that because of the special predicament or special position that you have to watch it. And that's what that's what sports is. I don't care what anybody says. Competition is what sells to me. That's why I love sports so much. Not because they're they half these basketball players are are, are butt buddies. <laughs> they're godfathers of their 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 opponents families and stuff like that. It's not like it used to be. I remember Chris Childs and the New York Knicks fighting and beating the hell out of Miami and hating each other. Alonzo Mourning, Jeff Van Gundy hanging on Alonzo Mourning's leg. I remember that. It's not what it used to be. And that's what makes sports so fantastic and what it was and what it should be to this day. It's competition. When we come back... Finally, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be talking to former Nets, Knicks, and Raptors ex-point guard Chris Childs here on the Sports Lab Mounts. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. This is the Sports Loud Mounts. is the number to call. You are listening to the Sports Loudmouths. I'm your host, Errol Marks, my co-host, Speeder, Speedy Petey. Go to our website at www.worldwidesportsradio.com. Check out all our shows throughout the week. They are live. And if you miss it, if you miss it, ladies and gentlemen, you can go to Apple Podcasts. We have 1.5 million downloads. You can check us out, the Sports Loudmouth, all the different guests as we have Chris Childs about to come on. We have crazy guests throughout the week and throughout our network Every single week. So go check out the Sports Loudmouths, which airs at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays or Thursdays at 9 p.m. Or Game On 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 Fridays at 6 p.m. Or Trace Night and the Wise Guys, which airs every Monday and Wednesdays or whatever the hell he goes on because he changes the date every single week. But now, ladies and gentlemen, our only guest, and, and we've been waiting to get this guy on as the Knicks absolutely bombed against the Miami Heat team they should have knocked off, and he knows a lot about the New York Knicks and Miami Heat uh, extravaganzas in the 90s. We are now talking to former Nets, Knicks, and Raptors point guard, Chris Childs. Chris, what's up, bud? What's up, fellas? Thanks for having me, man. 
Well, you look I'm good, man. Good. You look healthy. You have kids. Uh, you get a chance to watch them hey. play sports. Kids, grandkids now. Oh, jeez. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. I got five with one on the way, man. Hold on one second. How old are you, Chris? I'm 55, brother. You're 55? No, no way. Nope. Double nickel. Oh. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. I'm 41, and I feel like my body's falling apart. You look, you look good, man. You really do. You look healthy. I, I'm happy to have you yeah. on. Uh, with everything that's going on in the world with COVID-19, I, I just, I, it, it's just so hard when when you see. All the trials and tribulations some of you ex-athletes are going you've gone through. Uh, I mean, even the athletes that are in the game right now. Carl Anthony Town lost five family members last year to COVID nineteen. So uh, I'm just happy that you're on. And I'm happy that everything's going well. Yeah, man, everything's good. I feel good. Uh, train kids, so I'm in the gym uh, at least four times a week. Now I'm working out on you know working on my body, mm -hmm. you know helping them. But now I'm working out on my body and. Uh, I feel good when you have, when you go out there and try to play golf four times a week. Mm. You have to be able to be flexible. Mm. So that's what I'm working on right now. But yeah, man, thanks for having me. Well, you got to be flexible doing other things. You know, I'm not gonna. Your wife's around. I don't want to say it loud, but you you got to be flexible, my friend. If if you wanna if you wanna enjoy it, yeah, you definitely. Have to be <laughs> Speedy doesn't know anything about that. He's a virgin, but <laughs> he, you know, he has to know something about it with his name being Speedy. <laughs> well, uh, if you knew why we call him Speedy, you wouldn't be thinking that. But you know what, Speedy, that would be that would be something that you want to reach for. You want to be Speedy. Well, you want to be. Well, you don't want to be too fast. You want to you want to enjoy it. <laughs> Thank you. You can be speedy and then speed up again. And, you know. <laughs> well, that's why you have so many kids <laughs> <laughs> and grandkids. That's true. That's Dang true. Yeah. Uh, we are talking to former Nets, Knicks, and Raptors point guard Chris Child. So, Chris, let's go through your career first, and then we'll talk about the league, how it's changed from when you played, and then obviously the Knicks in Miami series. I mean, I'm sure you were watching that series, probably made you want to throw up, but that's a whole nother story. So, mm, yeah. I, I mean, you started your career on the the New Jersey Nets, and uh, really the the transition of the way the game has played over the years. And when and I remember those Nets teams, you were uh, you were a big part of the, the the growth of that Nets team over you know after the whole Jason Kidd thing, if you remember, and uh, and, and Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd, if you remember, he came from Dallas. The Nets, obviously, if I'm not mistaken, they traded him for Stephon Marbury, right? It was, no, Marbury, Marbury. Yeah. God. Well, what happened was I was I was with the Nets the first go-around. Right. When we had uh, Derek Coleman, That's Kenny right. Anderson, mm -hmm. Dwayne Schenzer, mm -hmm. uh, Chris mm -hmm. Morris, Kevin Edwards, all those guys. Mm -hmm. And so after I left. Jason. Jersey when Kalapari came in, right? They brought in I think Robert Pack first, and then yes. Jay Kidd yes. came later on. Yes, it was actually uh, it I was actually after you was Stephon Marbury, then Jay Kidd. They were traded for one another. Yeah, but I think they had Robert Pack first. Yes, then yes. then Stephon mm -hmm. and then uh, Jay Kidd. But uh, yeah, the, the you know the team was different. That's where I started. Uh, Willis Reed was my GM. Mm -hmm. Uh, rest in peace. Rest in peace. Uh, brought, brought me aboard uh, out, out of the CBA, uh, five years in the CBA, then finally get an opportunity. 
to play at that level, knowing, you know, the whole time that I could play, but I had to learn how to uh, be a point guard in the NBA. And so I got my opportunity in, in uh, New Jersey. Started off behind Kenny Anderson. Uh, they had, I think, David Wesley, but they traded David. Yep. Because I, would, I wouldn't allow him to bring the ball across half court because I was <laughs> just that that determined. I wanted his spot. And so uh, Butch Beard was my coach with Stan Allback, uh, Paul Silas. All those guys uh, played a big part in my development as a basketball player. It was amazing because if, if, if anybody remembers Chris Childs, and I do, when he came, he transitioned the point guard position for the Nets. Like he said, it went from him, then it went to Pack, then it went to Marbury, then it went to Jay Kidd, and Jay Kidd took it to another level. Jay Kidd really transitioned the point guard position, but you were the first. When they brought you in, you changed everything. You opened up the, the floodgates for the point guard position for the Nets. So it, it, it's it's crazy when you look at the background of the Nets and people forget about Chris Childs, but I never forgot about Chris Childs because I remember, and I and it, I don't know if anybody remembers this, I think it was 97, I think it was 97 when the Knicks in the offseason signed Chris Childs, Allen Houston, and Grandma Ma, Larry Johnson. Tell us a little bit about that when the story came out that you were going to go to the Knicks and you were signed by the Knicks and all those other players came with you. Well, initially I wanted to stay in New Jersey because mm-hmm. that was a team I started with. But Kalapari, uh, when he brought up, you know, nothing against Robert Pack, uh, loving, loved his game. But I had busted my behind to get there and he told me he was bringing pack in and not wanting to give me a long-term deal I felt disrespected so uh, I went home went to California went to LA worked out with uh, UCLA with Magic Johnson and his traveling squad and uh, I was either going to go to the Lakers (laughs) ironically (laughs) but they only offered me five years and the Knicks offered me six and so the Knicks, you know, growing up, even I grew up on the West Coast, I was always a, a Walt Frazier fan because mm. I loved the way he played the game. And so that transition over there uh, to to New York was was a dream come true. And they allowed me, I didn't have to fit into how the Knicks played because I already played that way. Mm-hmm. You know, that was just how I played, uh, defense first, uh, share the ball uh, via a disruptor on the defensive end. and. Uh, um, make sure that I was the one that was initiating everything, whether it was offensively or defensively. And, uh, the, you know, the first day I got there, Oak said, uh, you take care of the guards, I'll take care of the big guys. I'm like, okay, cool. And then Allen and, and bringing in Allen and, and Larry, who I followed, you know, a lot and played against, of course, I was like, dang, this is going to be a great mix. You know, because now we have, you know, some help with Patrick with offensive firepower. But I had to change my game mm-hmm. again because I had the green light in New Jersey. Right. So I'm like, damn, I got to get the ball to Patrick, <laughs> Allen. I said, okay, so let me change my game again. And uh, it was for the best. Uh, I don't have any regrets. Love that team. I loved our relationship. Uh, we all respected one another. And the, the thing that people from the outside don't see, uh, our practices were harder than the games. Mm. You know, we had to take, we take going in the shoot around. Mm-hmm. So, and all these things were just uh, 
a, a mental uh, component of the game that, you know, Jeff was just, he was just a madman. You know, there's nothing, no other way to describe it. He was, <laughs> he was just a sick individual. A small one, too. <laughs> small and sick is a scary combination. <laughs> You're damn right. And very bald. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he did. He did have the the comb over. (laughs) Is that how you got your do? I comb his hair with his fingers. (laughs) Maybe that's where a lot of these players have figured out how they were going to perform their do as they retired as young basketball players. (laughs) Maybe you try that trick on Stephon Marbury. (laughs) I'm I'm glad I don't have any hair, man. It's it's easy to deal with. He did have a set of hair when you played for the Knicks, that's for sure. I did. I kept I kept a nice cut, but hey, those days are over, man. I just shave it and go about my business. Grandpa Childs. <laughs> so speaking speaking see of that Papa. See Papa. See Pops. So speaking of that time with the Knicks, I got you or the guys were the only team to make the NBA finals as a number eight seed. So that whole season, that whole experience, what were some of your favorite moments both on and off the court in that season? One of the highlights of my career to be on a team that we had just made uh, more moves with bringing Spreewell and Canby and mm-hmm. Kurt Thomas, all those guys coming together. It took us a while to mesh. Then Patrick getting hurt. Uh, I was banged up. Most of the year, I know Larry was banged up. And so we got off to a slow start. But the one thing that I can I can say about the players and the uh, coaching staff, we never once believed that we weren't going to make the playoffs. And when we got there, that we were going to cause havoc. And then seeing that we were going to play the Miami Heat. <laughs> the heavens <laughs> just opened, man. Like, we know we can beat them. We... We've dominated them for at least, let me see, five, six years mm-hmm. uh, that we that we played against them. So we we wanted that matchup and enjoyed it. Um, a lot of the things that were going on with the team uh, early on, it was a lot of uh, uncertainties. Uh, guys weren't used to doing the things the way the Nick way because they they're new to the team. But we we came together at the right time and. Uh, Jeff Lettuce, uh, he's a great X and O guy. Uh, I'm I'm a firm believer that coaches don't lose games; players do. Uh, coaches put you in a position to succeed. Uh, the only time a coach, to me, coaches is doing a timeout. You know, uh, you know, drawing up an out of bounds play. But uh, we didn't have to have Jeff do everything because we had enough leaders on the floor that when we played against Miami, the Indianas, the Atlanta Hawks, we knew what to do. We are talking to former Nets, Knicks, and Raptors point guard Chris Childs. When I watched you play for the Knicks, you always played with a chip on your shoulders, and that's what I loved about you. As a Knicks fan, my favorite player growing up was Charles Oakley because he was a beast on a court. He was always the enforcer on the court protecting Patrick Ewing, protecting the superstars of those Nick teams. Even Anthony Mason may rest in peace as well. But there was another player. There was another player that you played against, uh, which you've had your own background of beefs. And may he rest in peace, it was Kobe Bryant. And I remember a long time ago that you and Kobe Bryant got into a shoving contest, almost a fist contest. And you guys went back and forth plenty of times. And Kobe respected you. I, I remember an interview with Kobe Bryant. 
years after his career was over, and he said the there was a couple of players that he respected, but he always looked when he was playing against those players that there, it was going to be a fight. And one of those names that he brought up was you. Tell us a little bit about your back-and-forth banter with Kobe Bryant over the years. It just seems to uh, always be that way uh, against great players because I was called upon to guard uh, some of the best players that ever played the game. And uh, I'm a strong believer in I don't care how physical you play the game. I'm okay with that. I just don't like dirty play. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it got to that point to where, you know, I had already had four concussions in my career. Mm -hmm. And once you start throwing elbows above the shoulder, I take offense to that. Uh, And and that's what occurred at that instance. We went back and forth. We played against each other at UCLA in the summer, Mm -hmm. uh, competed. but this particular game, I had just had enough. And I, I remember the referee, Monty McCutcheon, who <laughs> I've known for years uh, coming out of the CBA. And I asked him, I said, hey, you going to do anything about this? And he gives me the emoji shrug. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. I'm like, okay, I'll take care of it. And so knowing you know, how Kobe is and right. he's brash and uh, he wants to see what he can get away with, I told him, I said, if you do it again, it's, it's going to be a problem. I'm going to take <laughs> off on you. And, uh, you know, rest in peace. I don't, you know, want to always bring this up because I know it's still uh, kind of sensitive. Oh, he respect. People, but... I, I, he actually, I'm sorry to cut you off. He actually brought it up in an interview. Uh, what was it? Like two years before he passed away. And they brought up like the beefs that he's had on the court. And one of them was you. And he brought up, he says, uh, you know, when when I look at the game and I look when I look at guys that hold a chip on their shoulders, one of those guys really stood out more than the rest. And he mentioned you, and he says no hard feelings for what happened, but he said you were a guy that you always were a pesky person. And he said that when I went out there, I was trying to chip at these guys, and one of those guys was you. It is an interesting story because I remember you had that problem with Miami as well. You had your little fusses over there in Miami with those Heat teams, if you remember as well. I've had a lot of interaction. Actions with a lot of those guys, in particular Tim Hardaway. Of course, I couldn't stand his voice. I still can't to this day. And, um, he was a guy that got away with a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. shoulder stuff and elbows, and whatnot. And so, uh, at that time, I couldn't do anything because David Stern had called me in the office, and after the Kobe incident, he said I can get eighty percent of my fine back. And the other 20% would go to charity. So that kind of handcuffed me from letting these hands go uh, (laughs) again against him because I wanted him so bad. I I didn't want to. I was going to get kicked out on purpose. (laughs) Try to get get him kicked out so we can go back in the locker room and and finish having a conversation. But a lot of times, man, it's just competing. That's the way way the game was. You know, if somebody disrespected you or or try to get under you and try to get you out of your game, that's fine. But once it starts getting dirty, mm-hmm. now we have a problem. Uh, same thing with MJ. You know, he he would throw elbows and stuff and act like he didn't do anything, and I wasn't going for that. I don't care who you are. Mm-hmm. So from rivals to teammates, let's go to Patrick Ewing. So what was he like as a teammate, and is there anything that about Patrick Ewing maybe off the court that a lot of fans <laughs> don't know about him? <laughs> Oh man, beast, 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 beast. Uh, I talked. I, let me see. I talked to Beast Patrick uh, probably two weeks ago. I had a was at a golf event, and a young lady uh, 
he was one of the young lady's favorite players. And so I, I called and uh, he was gracious enough. Well, he talked shit first. <laughs> he was like, oh, I'm at my such and such game. I said, man, you got five minutes. I said, you can't see anyway. Uh, shit. If you could, then you'd have threw better passes off the double team. Oh. So. <laughs> so he uh but no he uh he uh talked to the young lady briefly and he made her day but patrick was a a, a great player he's a but he was a diva mm. he was a, he was the only guy on the team that had a can i curse on him yeah go ahead go ahead no i don't want to i don't know just I, say I, it I'll, say I'll it we're good well no, uh, he fine. was the only guy on the team that had a fucking robe <laughs> in his locker <laughs> I'm like, and I, it was just different, man. But uh, funny guy, uh, he was a diva. Mm -hmm. He, uh, when we go to a timeout, he had to have a cup with tissue in it. It had to be the Gatorade <laughs> cup with tissue so he can blow his nose and shit. <laughs> and then he had his water bottle had to be wiped off. It couldn't be any residue on it. It had to be dry. And the label had to be taken off. He didn't want any paper on there. And I'm sitting in a timeout like, what the hell is going on here? But these were the things. He was superstitious. These were the things he had to have in front of him. But it was it was funny to me. I, I, could, I just laughed like, okay, you guys are stupid enough to do it. Go ahead. <laughs> we are talking to former Nets, Knicks, and Raptors point guard, Chris Childs. You know, it's so interesting when you look at the time that you played and how many great players. And I always said the 90s basketball was one of the greatest decade of basketball. When you look at Hakeem Olajuwon, Patrick Ewing, uh, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Carl uh, Malone, John Stockton, Isaiah Thomas. I mean, there were so many great you players. Gotta say Shaq. Shaq. Gotta put Shaq Absolutely. In there. Penny Hardaway. Tim Duncan. Grant Hill. Mm -hmm. uh, Reggie Miller. Mm -hmm. David Robs. I mean, it's great. Great, great ball players. When you look at the game when you were playing with all those players, who really stood out the most when you played against them? You were like starstruck. I know you 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 had your differences with Michael Jordan, so keep Michael Jordan out. Where, where what team and what player did you play against where you were just completely starstruck when you played against them? I don't know if I would say starstruck, but I just remember the first time I was on the court with Magic Johnson. I was in the CBA and he had a traveling team, and I have a picture, probably one of only the pictures I have in my home of sports uh, memorabilia, uh, he's hugging me as we were walking down the court. He said to me, he said, you're going to play in the league. He said, you can play. He said, stop worrying about if people like you or not. He said, they don't have to like you, but they damn well better respect you. And the way you get respect is to lead by example. So that resonated that that stayed with me. And I couldn't believe that the great Magic Johnson would tell me that. And then it just built uh, even more because I would go home to California and work out at UCLA and he would pick me on his team because he said I knew how to win. I, I, I say bullshit. He knew I was going to throw him the ball. <laughs> <laughs> so we can win, but no, I, I, I appreciated him. And then the great Larry Bird. Mm. Uh, I remember going in the garden and, you know, I'm usually someone, the game's at 7.30. I get there about 5, you know, get myself going, but I went over to the guard early about, I think it was like 
mm-hmm. because I wanted to get the feel of the floor because they said it was dead spots, <laughs> you know, at the old Boston Garden. Mm-hmm. So I get over there and I go down to the court. Larry Bird's already there. And I asked the guy, uh, one of the uh, ushers, I said, what time did he hit here? And uh, he said, 3.30. I'm like, oh, shit. So <laughs> I'm watching <laughs> I'm watching him shoot, and it's just effortless. And I'm, I'm in awe. I'm, I'm really in awe. And so I'm a rookie, so I go up to him. I say, hey, Mr. Bird. He turns around and gives me the, the meanest look. <laughs> he said, my name's Larry. He said, Mr. Bird is my father. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. I said, yes, sir, Larry. I said, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, how many shots do you shoot a, uh, a day? He said, if I had to count them, I ain't shot enough. <laughs> right. And so then they come to New York and I still, I wanted a number. So I asked him again. He said, most likely hmm, 5,000 shots a day. He said, you have to shoot the ball that many times to get the feel of the ball coming off your fingers the same way every time. So those two players were the ones that I really admired. And if you say a star struggle are, uh, it was those two. But playing against someone that I just couldn't believe how good he was was Tim Duncan. His footwork, his, I mean, somebody that could shoot a bank shot with one hand, two hands, and hit the same spot every time. Uh, it was uh, incredible. And then I have to see that shit in the '99 Finals. Um, <laughs> pissed me off, but yeah, he was he was great as well. Mm. So uh, after you were, after your Knicks career, you went to Toronto for a brief period of time. You got to play with Vince Carter. You got to play with somebody like Hakeem Olajuwon at the end of his career. So being a new Canadian team at that time, the Toronto Raptors, an expansion team around that time. What was that whole experience like playing in Canada? That whole culture thing. You know, it, it, Toronto is a, it's just a cleaner New York. Uh, nice place. Beautiful. Nice people. Beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful people, beautiful city. Um, I know I didn't want to be traded because I got trade. I think the trade deadline back then was on a Tuesday. It was. Tuesday at 12 o'clock. And I was in Hackensack, New Jersey, getting ready to get a haircut because it was a blizzard. We were getting ready to go out. <laughs> and it was 11.59. And all my buddies were, oh, yeah, you're still here another year. 11.59, 30 seconds, my phone rang. They had just traded me to Toronto. I was like, what the is going on here? <laughs> but once I got there, I was like, oh, this is a beautiful city. Mm-hmm. I had a chance to play with some great players, great coaches. And uh, Lenny Wilkins is one of, the, mm-hmm. one of my favorite coaches of all time yeah. because he's so chill. Our practices, we probably practiced for like an hour, <laughs> about an hour. But he was like, if you come in and get your work done, we don't have to be here all day. He said, I don't want to be here all day. You know, so same thing. I get there. Oak is there. So we connect. Same thing. You take care of the guards. I got the big guys. And so I was brought there to bring some toughness, but also to help Vince because Vince uh, hadn't yet really understood how great he was. And I remember, you know, sitting down with him and asking him, are, are, are you the best player in the league? Do you want to be the best player in the league? He said, yeah, sometimes, but sometimes I'll be out there BSing. I said, dude, I didn't come here to see your BS. I came here to see your greatness. 
So let's get that BS stuff out the way and let's get out there and compete and do something special for this city. And uh, we we played well. And what's, what's crazy is when I did get traded, we end up playing the Knicks in the playoffs. <laughs> I remember that. Yes, I do. And mm-hmm. yeah, and I told Jeff, I talked so much stuff to him and <laughs> Charlie. I told Spreewell if he said anything else, I was gonna beat his ass. And, <laughs> oh, it was it was. I loved it. Uh, I felt bad for the fans because I uh, I was. I was being an instigator during the games, mm-hmm. you know, you know, but I never want to disrespect the New York fans or the team. But at that time, I was still a little uh, pissed off that they traded me, but it's all about, it's a business. So mm-hmm. they had to make a business decision. And I think they, they probably, I think they brought in Martin Jackson, didn't they? Yes, they did. And I'm like, again, on. that was the, the second time they brought in <laughs> Mark Jackson. Right, that yes. wasn't the the number one no. draft pick. No, Jackson. So no. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna eat him up. I'm gonna eat up my friend Charlie, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna do some damage. Yeah, I remember. I remember Mark Jackson. <laughs> and, I, and 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 honestly, I I and I'm not saying this. I actually loved your your attitude. You gave the Knicks in that point guard position attitude because Charlie Ward. He was a good point guard. I, he was a great football player, Heisman Trophy winner. He decided right. to play basketball, and he was. We never had that grit at the point guard position for, for whatever reason. We we always had. We were weak in that area when it came to energy and you know standing up for that position. So when you came, you gave the Knicks a little bit of an edge. We are talking to former Nets, Knicks, and Raptors point guard Chris Childs. You know, Chris. I hated Reggie Miller, okay? I absolutely despise that man, okay? I'm not a big Spike Lee fan either because for some reason he gives us bad luck every time he sits there. But <laughs> nevertheless, and by the way, I, I met Spike Lee, and I actually told him at his art gallery that, uh, you know, I think you should stay away from the team because you bring us such bad luck, but that's just me. Switch seats. Yes. <laughs> uh, switch seats or go somewhere else. Hide in the corner or something so we don't have see those ugly, you know, hats that you wear. But so Maybe Errol was involved with James uh, Dolan's plot to get him oh, out of man. the other entrance. <laughs> oh, my God. James Dolan's another guy. Hide, please. Go somewhere else. But nevertheless, yeah. nevertheless, Reggie Miller, I couldn't stand. And one thing I couldn't stand more than anything was his ugly ears. He looked like Dumbo, okay? And every time <laughs> I, every time he used to shoot a three, I, I used to think he was going to glide with his ears. I've I, I seen some craziest stuff. What was it like defending Reggie Miller? I, I want to know your opinion. What was it like defending a guy that talked so much crap on the court, I've heard, and a guy that just killed the Knicks every single year? It didn't matter when and where, he killed the Knicks. Yeah, I, I actually enjoyed playing against Reggie. Uh, was it tough? Yes, it was tough because he was nonstop movement, nonstop grabbing, nonstop talking. Uh, but he he never really talked to me per se because I didn't really say anything to him. But I knew I could guard him uh, probably better than anybody on our team at that time because I I knew because I've known Reggie you know back in California Riverside 
And I knew not to give him two ways to run. If he's going to go right, let him keep going right. Because once he starts moving around, he's going to grab your shirt. He's going to flop. He's going to look at the ref. But he was a handful. And I, I enjoyed competing against Reggie a lot. He gave the Knicks a mm. lot of headaches. Oh, because God, please. One, he can shoot. He can shoot off the dribble. And he's always floating when he's shooting unless he's just wide open. But when he comes off the screens, he's curling, he's leaning, he's getting calls, he's getting fouled. And if you foul him, he shot with 94% from the free throw line. So, you know, you got to take your medicine. But he never got to the point where he was dirty. You know what I mean? Like the other guys, because if he was, then we wouldn't be talking to him in this manner. You know, it's so interesting. Uh, and now I want to go into the Knicks for the last 25 years. Since you have not been there. And this organization has been absolutely putrid, okay? I don't know how many GMs have we had, how many coaches have we had, and it just never works. This year, finally, they bring, they, they, they bring in Jalen Brunson. They found a point guard. I have not seen a point guard this good or on, a, on this Knicks roster, on any Knicks roster in over 30 years, okay? And... I I think that we see that the transition of this Knicks team. What has stood out to you in the last 25 years on why this New York Knicks team has been so bad of an organization since you left, Sprewell left, all those players left 25 years ago? It's just the players. Everybody can't play in New York. You start reading your press clippings, the good ones, the bad ones, and then you get into self and you're not into team. I think a lot of the players that, were brought in was all about self and not about what was on the shirt. They were worried about what was on the back of the shirt. We didn't care about that. We cared about what was on the front of the shirt and how uh, much of a privilege it was to step on the court at Mass for a Garden, but to perform in front of the best fans in the world. Uh, a lot of decisions that the uh, management has made didn't work out. It backfired part of the business. I think they got it right. I'm surprised Jalen's played as well as he has. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody uh, expected that, but I did. He has the. I did. I just there, want you to there know. There is no. There I, is speedy, no way on Speedy. Earth. Speedy, tell him. Speedy, speedy, tell him. I had. There was. And I. I know a little bit about Jalen Brunson. I followed him in Villanova. I know what he did. He's one of the greatest college basketball players of all time. How he fell to the second round made no sense. What he did for Dallas last year, I said, if the Knicks make a move for him, there were so many experts, so many fantasy basketball experts all throughout social media that was telling me the Knicks are going to regret this. They overpaid for a guy. They paid him. They gave him a four-year, $32.5 million a year, and he's going to be a bust. He's going to be a bust. He's not that good. And I told everybody, you watch. This guy is going to transition into one of the best point guards in the league because the Knicks have never had a guy that can play up top in a pick-and-roll style of game and shoot the ball as well as he can at the point guard position. And I said, watch. This guy's going to transition into a star. Everybody thought I was nuts. Everybody said I was stupid, and you're just talking like a Knicks fan. And what happened? He became, this year, one of the top five best point guards in the league. So, yes, Mr. Childs, I did. I was one of very few. Well, you need to go play the lottery. You need to go to Vegas, <laughs> no, Atlantic I City, no, I uh, somewhere to, to gamble. <laughs> I, I, like I, when, he, when I saw him in Dallas, and I, I've known him since he was a, a kid because mm-hmm. uh, his dad, but I, I knew that he would be – he would have the perfect demeanor to play in New York. Uh, he don't get too high. He don't get too low. So 
he's even killed. But I never thought that he would put up the numbers consistently like he did this year and then especially in the playoffs. Now what they're going to have to do, they're going to have to get some help in the backcourt position or Quigley needs to understand he's not Jalen Brunson. Mm -hmm. He has to be him. Your job is to initiate the offense, get up and down the transition and get to the bucket and stop shooting so many threes. If not, they're going to bring somebody else in because for me, I think they're going to trade Quigley and Randall this year. Mm. That's just my own uh, opinion because uh, they need another backup point guard that can come in and keep the lead or extend the lead when they're in there, uh, be able to get in transition and get the team uh, in an offensive flow that I think they lack this year, especially against Miami. Mm. They shot too many threes, so we'll, uh, we'll wait and see. One of our fans actually has a very good question. Uh, Carl asks, uh, was Vince Carter the best in-game dunker you've ever seen, or was it Michael Jordan? Oh, shoot. Uh, I've seen both of those guys, but I've seen Vince do some unbelievable things. Mm. Something came up on TikTok the other day, and I'm like, damn, I I remember that dunk. So uh, I would give Vince... The edge over Michael, yes. I think I think Vince was more of a power dunker. Michael Jordan was more of a glider. That's what he 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 floated. Young Michael, mm-hmm. he was power, grace, everything. Mm. Salt and pepper, garlic, uh, you name it. He had the whole thing. But yeah, Vince was Vince could he would he can jump so high, and uh, he was a little bigger and stronger than Michael. But I remember in practice. Uh, I sound like AI practice. <laughs> um, he uh, he went to the basket, and so I told uh, uh, Lenny Wilkins, I said, "Let me guard Vince in practice," because he I was guarding Alvin. I said, "No, I'll, I'll guard Vince." And I told Dale Curry, "You guard uh, Alvin." Mm. And so I guess when you're a Nick, your reputation precedes you. That you're going to get, you're going to foul somebody real hard. And so Vince went to the basket, and I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> I, can't, I can't let him embarrass me, you know, the first day. And so I went like I was going to foul him, and he double clutched. Oh, and I God. went up to him. I said, I said, hey, you know what? Thank you so much for not, for not dunking on me. But if you do that shit in the game, we will have a problem. <laughs> you know, you mentioned Del Curry. And by the way, we are talking to former Nets, Knicks, and Raptors point guard Chris Childs. Del Curry, he has two NBA kids right now. And one of them really changed the game, Steph Curry. I'm not a big fan of, fan of Steph Curry because I think he's hurt the game. I know a lot of people say he's made the game better. He's he's br- brought people to be a fan of the NBA because he's like six foot three, six foot two. He's a small guy that could shoot the ball. What do you remember of Steph Curry and, uh, you know, obviously Del Curry in those years that you were playing for Toronto? Uh, I just remember them as kids. Uh, well, my oldest son, they used to, after practice, you know, we would get out there with them, let them shoot, uh, play one-on-one. But the thing that amazed me about those kids is that I think at the time they might have been either nine or ten. These kids were shooting three-pointers from out of bounds with their left hand. And I'm sitting back and Dale and I are sitting there on the bench just watching like, how did this happen? You know, because we it's not like we tied one of their hands up and let them shoot. (laughs) 
it was just a gift that God gave them. And these kids just really enjoyed the game. And then when they got older and uh, the, the stuff that he's doing now, I think, you know, I, I hear all the, you know, experts say that he hurt the game, whatever. But to an extent, I agree because every kid thinks they can do that instead of working on the, the other nuances mm -hmm. of the game. Uh, I think a lot of fundamentals are lost now. Uh, players coming into the NBA aren't as fundamentally sound as they used to be. Uh, so that can be attributed to uh, not just uh, Steph, but a lot of the guys that are coming in uh, uh, playing travel ball and uh, doing things on the internet. Now all the kids want to do that. But for him to do what he's the career that he's had at his size. Right. And when he came in, I think he was maybe 160 pounds yep. or something. Mm -hmm. From Davidson. To get his body. Yeah, to get it, Davidson to get his body uh, the way it is. He couldn't. Uh, I can't because I think uh, Mike Krzyzewski from Duke didn't want him. Nope, he didn't. You know, so I know he's kicking himself in the ass for that one. But uh, for him to do what he's done at his, at his size is remarkable. I don't think uh, another guard has done anything like that since maybe oh, Isaiah Thomas that has such a yes a, a impact on the on on the team and the game itself in the NBA. Isaiah just came along where uh, it was Michael, Larry, and and, and uh, Magic, but uh, Steph uh, has done some incredible things. Seth has done some incredible things. Uh, I'm proud of him. Uh, Proud of uh, Gary Payton, uh, the second, mm -hmm. uh, who's out there playing. Uh, my uh, son is married to Gary Payton's daughter. So oh, look at that. To, look at that. Yeah, we get a chance to talk and see uh, his kid go through some of the things that we went through. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's just it's just a blessing. Yeah, well, the glove was one of the greatest defensive players to ever play the game. There's no question. And one of the biggest talkers. I, I could tell you that. He knew how to talk. I remember going to a basketball game. I'll never forget this. Uh, they Gary Baton, it was a Supersonics. I, I was a kid. I was like 12 or 13 years old. My uncle brought me down to the court. I think the Supersonics, uh, Sean Kemp, Gary Payton, uh, and I was on the floor, and they were. I think they were playing the Nets, and I'll never, for, I'll never forget it. Gary Payton was coming around, and he was. They were uh, one of the one of the guys on the Supersonics, one of the uh, the bench players, where he was, you know, you know, dancing around with the ball. And he says, "You can't guard me. You can't guard me. That's why they call me the Glove." And and I and he he started putting his hand like before John Cena even came out, and he did this to the kid, and he just went around him, and he, and when he put the ball in his face, I remember coming around, and he said he did one of these. He said, "That's right, Glove." <laughs> I I believe it. Uh, I believe it because that's uh, one thing he does, and to this day he still talks a lot. <laughs> I'll never forget him, and 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 I I loved him as a player because defense was so important to my game when I played basketball. It was always defense first, and a shoot. You know, I'm a white guy. You know, what what does a white guy usually do? They shoot. I can't jam. <laughs> I I I remember when I tried to jam my first basketball. I was like 14, 15 years old. I could get up there. I almost broke my ankles trying to do that. So I I never tried to do that after that. So white men cannot jump. That's just. The facts, okay? Say that to Rex Chapman. <laughs> Brent Berry. Oh, 
Well, Tom, Cha- Tom Chambers, Tom Chambers. Yeah, those are, those guys were pretty tall. I mean, I'm like five foot nothing. You know, those guys were in their six feet, six foot three, six foot four. I can't jump, man. I I tried. I tried my best, Chris. At least you could jam. I mean, you weren't you weren't that tall. What are you six two? Yeah, yeah, six six three. Yeah, yeah six, six three. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, I mean, you weren't the tallest guy, but you you could still you know you can get up there. I saw you get up there. I was too. I was too. I was too tired. Uh, try to dunk it. I would lay it up because I'm playing defense 94 feet. Uh, you so. dunk the ball. I've seen you dunk the ball. I, I, I can dunk. I, yeah, back then, but that wasn't my thing. I know. Uh, your your thing was defense. Your your strength was defense. You were, you were always put on the best guard on the other team. I always, whenever, and Jeff Van Gundy, he used you. Gundy loved to use you uh, against the best guard of any other team because he knew that you were going to get under them and you were going to make sure that it was go- wasn't going to be easy when it, that, right. when they were trying to get to the hole. So uh, th- that's what made you special and that's what made you a good player. I always liked you, Chris. I'm not trying to blow your head up. I I, I love the fact when the Knicks brought you in and uh, Larry Johnson and Allen Houston. I really thought we were going to win a title. I remember when Allen Houston came to the team, he came from Detroit, and I was like, oh, man, we finally got a great shooter. And then Grandmama Larry Johnson, I loved his commercials. I loved him on Family Matters as Grandmama, him him hanging out with Steve Urkel. I loved it, okay? That 99 season was a heartbreaker. It was an absolute heartbreaker. Half a season, 50 games. I really thought after – I remember Larry Johnson, I think, hit that three. It was a four-point play against – I think it was against Reggie Miller and the Pacers. Uh, Indiana, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was the Pacers. I remember that the game was over, and I don't know what happened. Larry Johnson hit this four-point play, won that game, and took you guys all the way to the NBA Finals. I'll never forget that. And I said, we're going to win. We're finally going to win a championship. Who would have thought – and then you played a young Tim Duncan and the Admiral David Robertson, and they absolutely gave you guys a clinic. Do you remember that? Yeah, they gave us the business. Oh, uh, did they ever? That that season was tough, but the '97 season was tougher to yeah. me because I thought that we had the perfect team. We had beat the Bulls three out of four times that year. We were up three-one against Miami. Then the fight. So we end up losing, uh, I think, six players, seven players, and they have to split uh, game six and game seven. Uh, they couldn't play. So that was uh, that was heartbreaking because I, I really felt in my heart that uh, we would have beat the Bulls and made it to the finals. Uh, it didn't happen. We get another chance in 99. Uh, that team they had, uh, San Antonio, was just a well-oiled machine. I think if, we, if Patrick wouldn't have got hurt, he would have gave us a better opportunity because then uh, Patrick, Marcus could have played uh, Tim. Patrick could have guarded David, could have right. moved LJ to the three to guard uh, Sean Elliott. And now we got, you know, Spree and, and, and uh, Allen can do their thing. So... We missed Patrick a lot because we were undersized because Kirk, you know, tried his best. But those guys were playing volleyball up there, man. It was it was it was tough. And it was crazy. After we after we lost to them, I went to Hawaii uh, (laughs) with my fiance at the time. 
and my buddy talked me into getting married. I wasn't ready to get married. <laughs> I'm not married. So I can say that now. I'm not married. But uh, he talked me into getting married. But we went golfing the day of the wedding. Mm. And so we're coming out the clubhouse. And you can't, I call this hashtag CMTSU. <laughs> can't make this shit up. <laughs> Walk out the clubhouse. Who do I run into? David Robinson. Of course. We just lost. I'm like, and so he's like, hey, man, you guys getting ready to play? I said, yeah, we already got a fortune, even though it was only two of us. Because I didn't want to play with him. He said, oh, okay, well, maybe next time. I live right up the house, up the street or whatever, up the beach. I said, okay, yeah, yeah, we, you know, we got four, so see you later. So it was just weird, man, that, you know, we just played these guys, and I run into this cat uh, in Kona, Hawaii. What are the chances? Uh, the day of my wedding. What are the yeah. chances? Bad luck with the the marriage. Bad luck with the uh, with the finals. Yeah. Uh, well, know. you know what's bad luck is is some of the antics of some of these players. And this is the last question for me. Okay, last question for me. I know you're a busy guy. Uh, we're so happy to have you on the show. And by the way, we are talking to former Nets, Knicks, and Raptors point guard Chris Childs. Uh, and and we'd love to get John again. Um, yes. There is a lot of craziness going on in the NBA. Okay. And there's a lot of antics. You have Kyrie Irving, who is an unbelievable talent, but he thinks the earth is flat. His anti-Semitic views has has hurt the league this year. Then, obviously, John Morant carrying around a gun, loaded gun. He, he's, supposedly a couple of years ago, he was playing against this kid, a pickup game. He pulls out his gun. Uh, then he's at a strip bar. He's pulling out a gun. And then he's uh, putting up a video on Instagram, and he pulls out a gun. And the NBA suspends him. All this craziness going on. And this, honestly, even when you played, there wasn't as much craziness going on with the players that is going on now. Why do you think that these young players are doing this stuff now than they, from what they didn't do when you were playing? Well, I, I must say this, that um, there was some crazy stuff going of, on. Of course. When we played, it just no, it just no social media was, mm -hmm. was back then. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of it, though, we knew that uh, certain situations, there's a cause and effect by certain things that you do. So I'll just attack now the basketball players. Now, mm -hmm. uh, I think Kyrie's misunderstood. I think a lot of times guys, and I don't know if they're smoking weed or whatever when they're talking. Uh, but one thing I remember uh, the great Herman Edwards said, do not push sin all right with these tweets and these videos and all that stuff uh Kyrie is like i said i think he's one of i love watching him uh let me just say that but a lot of times you have to be careful what you say and what you think you can have a thought or you can believe in something that doesn't mean you have to speak it mm -hmm. because once once it's out there then now you have to play catch up and try to turn it around and that's just a waste of time uh stop posting stuff uh, there's no need. You already got your money, so I don't know if you're trying to get likes or whatever. Uh, it doesn't matter anymore. Just play the game and uh, let everything else take care of itself. Now, with John Morant, he has no guidance. He has no one to tell him, you're dumb. You're doing stupid stuff. We're not going to do that. Uh, for him to, to pull out guns on several occasions, 
lets me know he must want to be a cowboy or something. <laughs> or, you know, just it's just it doesn't make any sense to me that you you don't look at you possibly can be a billionaire, a billionaire within five years with the mark with the uh, endorsements in your contract. Uh, and you and you do this, even though it's not against the law, it's against the brand of the NBA to do something detrimental, to disrespect the shield, the brand. So you can't do that. I would get rid of everybody that I've known since I was five and say, hey, I appreciate you sticking by me. They go $100,000, whatever you're going to do, you can invest or do whatever you want to do with it. We are done because he's going to allow his personal relationships uh, damage his uh, credibility uh, as a person, uh, his, his as a basketball player, because his word doesn't mean anything now because he did the whole interview uh, about he's sorry and that he's, you know, he's going to show people that he's... Now you now your word doesn't mean anything. So he has to do a um a 360. He needs to get positive people in his corner. His parents have to step up and be parents instead of trying to be friends. Uh and he needs to uh really have a conversation with Alan Ivers because Alan mm-hmm. went to the penitentiary. He's he came from that environment. Ja has it. So he needs to spend some time. If I was Jim Tanner who uh, represents him, I will call uh, Alan Iverson and fly him in to have a sit down with that young man so that Alan can explain to him what prison is like. Because if you continue down this path, that's what's going to happen. Because now you got, and I'm from California, so now you got Crips, gangbangers, mm-hmm. serious gangbangers, talking about they're going to charge you for you throwing up gang signs. That's scary. That's not a good, that's not what you want as a basketball player. He needs an intervention with a guy like AI or somebody that uh, understands that culture of what that means. Mm-hmm. And he needs a positive person that uh, he needs to have around him 24 seven. Cause if not, you know, we've seen guys uh, come in this league uh, end up going to prison. I think Javar Critton is one of them. Yep. Uh, that did that with the, uh, I think he attempted murder or murder or whatever mm-hmm. because of that. And so uh, this is nothing to to uh, play with. This is nothing to ignore. It needs to be uh, dealt with right away. And his parents got to step up. So my last question, just a memory of uh, the late, great Anthony Mason that you played with. Anthony Mason, my CBA brother. Uh, such a such a great guy. Uh, you wouldn't know it by just playing against him because he was such a big personality, big dude, very physical. I've never seen a guy run that fast, standing straight up. You know, his chest is straight up. He's dripping like this, and he's just <laughs> flying down the court. Um, yeah, I, I I just know that he loved his his the borough of Queens where he's from. He loved his family. Uh, he was a um, a great person. He was very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he he would tell a lot of jokes. And I used to tell him that, stop tapping me on my head because he'll laugh and like, <laughs> oh, CC, you're crazy. 
Like, man, stop tapping me on my head. That's why I'm bald now, because some big, dirty-ass <laughs> hands uh, tap me on my head. But uh, he's a miss. Great guy, man. Uh, that smile was infectious. His, his basketball IQ, people don't know he had a high basketball IQ. If you watch him, he can see plays before they happen, and he always passed the ball on time and on target. So he was an unbelievable player. And uh, he's missed every day. I loved Anthony Mason with his different hairdos, his different, you know, signs in his head. I mean, he he really changed the game. And also his weird shot. I mean, he had one of the ugliest shots I've ever seen. But he was a pretty good free throw shooter. It was unbelievable. I, I was... I, he was he was a tough guy too. He he would go out there if he put his hand if you put your hands on any of the star players or any of his teammates, he would back you up a hundred and ten percent. He was he was everything you wanted in a player. Anthony Mason and I I met Anthony Mason years and years ago before he passed away. I met his son Anthony Mason Jr. who played for St. John's. Uh, he was a really really very 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 cool to the fans. Uh, he he was like one of the dudes. He'll sit he'll sit at the table and talk basketball with you, talk football with you. Very good, very big sports fan, very knowledgeable too. So um, just uh, just a sad situation what happened to Anthony Mason. It really was. Yeah, yeah, he'll be missed. Um, you know, I know a lot of times in life we want the physical person there, but you know, enjoy the memory. Mm. And, and speaking of that, free he had the uh, pause and effect. Mm-hmm. You know, that thing. Was, oh yeah, oh yeah. We had a little hitch to it, oh. and uh, it was it it was funny because I think in the CBA, if I can remember, because he was with the Albany Patrols or he was with lacrosse. Mm-hmm. I think he tried shooting the free throws right handed. <laughs> if I think he tried, but it 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 looked worse. It was worse than that. It was almost like Sean Marion shot. Oh, you know? that was so ugly. Oh, maybe Mitchell Robinson <laughs> to try that. Oh. <laughs> Hey, oh. Mitchell, yeah, he needs to try something. He but, needs to do hey, something. That kid showed up this, this postseason, so I'm happy for yes. him. Yes, maybe he needs to under, you know, throw the underhand, you know? Yes. Well, Rick yeah. Barry, Rick yeah. Barry, the next Rick Barry, because Rick Barry right. never missed a free throw, never missed a free throw throwing the underhand. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe you go that. What do they call those, those Granny shots? style. The granny style. Gra- granny. Granny style. Well, Chris, we really appreciate the hour with you. You're you're fantastic. You're a great interview. And and by the way, congratulations being a grandfather, uh, being a father. Appreciate it. And uh, keep up the good work. We're going to get you on a lot sooner than later. You you really are. The stories that you told us and your insight of what's going on in the NBA, especially the John Moran thing. It's very interesting. It's key when you hear it from a veteran player that's been there, had a long career in the NBA, and understands that when you do stuff like that to the media, especially with social media, how it's changed the game, it could put you in a situation where it could get you killed. And unfortunately, you don't want to see that with John Moran because he's a special player, and he's one of the the talented players you want to see the NBA moving towards the future. And uh, unfortunately, three times is the charm. If he does it again... It could it could cost his career. I mean, I, I can't see the NBA sitting here and letting this kid wave a gun around and think it's okay. So, well, Adam Silver has to uh, step up. Uh, I, I don't like to say if David was here, rest in peace, it would be different mm-hmm. uh, because each person has to have their own agenda how they want to run the league. 
but uh, Adam needs to step up and I wouldn't even talk about it as, as much through the media right mm. now until I had to sit down with him, uh, his representatives, uh, the team. Uh, he needs some type of counseling because for some reason he feels like he has to be this tough guy and this, 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 this thug or gangster or whatever. There's nothing. What's gangster is that you're able to make $250 million. They don't, it don't get no more gangster than that. You know? Yeah, I'm real gangster. I got $250 million. That's right. Had his gun. Give me a slingshot or something, you know? <laughs> a slingshot. Yeah, you know, come on, man. Let's, let's, let's be real. That's as gangster as it gets. Yeah. Nice. A lot of the, money the, these guys the nerds, the nerds, the nerds, the, the tech guys, those are the cool guys. Mm. Those are the guys that are going to change the world. Why wouldn't you want to be on that stratosphere to change the world and change people's lives mm. instead of taking someone's lives? Interesting. There's nothing cool about that. Interesting. You, you come to, to California, any neighborhood, I can take you somewhere back home. You would run. You would get on the first plane. <laughs> first thing, smoking. You don't. You don't want to see that. You don't want to do that, man. You, you. God gave you a gift to reach people and touch people through basketball, but you're doing it in the wrong manner, and uh, eventually it's going to uh, come back to haunt you. I hope it doesn't happen. Uh, but Adam Silver needs to step up and uh, really put the hammer down. And it's not about. I'm not all about suspending all these games, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's. He has to, something has to happen. I get that. But that kid needs intervention. It's not about going to a, a certain counselor. No, send his ass to Rikers, you know, for a couple of days so he can see what goes on at Rikers. Mm. That will change your mentality of wanting to be gangster. It's very interesting. It really is. And and having an ex-NBA player say that who played the same position as him and understands how the game is played, it's 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 sad. But hopefully John Moran gets his head out of his ass because if he doesn't, he's going to put himself in the ground. Uh, it, it just it doesn't make any sense. The kid's got tremendous talent, and I, I think he's a special player. And I, I want to see the kid succeed. And unfortunately, the Memphis Grizzlies might say, you know what, I don't, I, I don't want to deal with his crap. I want to part ways with him. I'd rather get something back for him now than get nothing back for him in the future. So I, I just I hope I hope for the long long haul, the NBA and Chalmers. Maybe they need to send you to talk to him. That's what I think. Saint Chris I've already Childs. put a, uh, a text message to Jim Tanner mm -hmm. uh, to set up something. I wouldn't have a problem talking to the young man because uh, it's, it's, it's somebody's going to reach him. Somebody has to reach him. Who knows who that person is going to be? Who knows uh, what he's receptive to? Uh, I've never met him, uh, but I've already put the uh, filler out to see if they can set something up. I would love to sit down with him for an hour. I would love to take him to a penitentiary so he can see exactly what could possibly happen right. if you continue down that path. But right now, all we do is pray that everything works out. Um, like I said, his parents have to be parents now. Chris, thank you, buddy. Uh, keep up the good hey, work. Hey, my man. I love you, man. I, 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 I love, you know, it took a little while to get you on. You had a little bit of problems over there on, on your side of the side of the no, screen. Y'all sent, y'all sent a phantom, uh, a request on the uh I told email. him that I, I told him that it wasn't it wasn't his email. I didn't I not tell you that? 
Did I not tell you that, Speedy? What are you looking at? Are you are you there? Or it was you... the same email, but okay. But he's, he's sleep. Speedy, I... Speedy ain't got no more speed. He's sleep. Oh, he was, we need to give him some speed so it opens up his eyes. <laughs> Jeez, man. Oh, Chris. No, but we, we made it happen. Man. Absolutely. So it was fun, man. Absolutely. Uh, man. Let me know whenever I'll, I'll come on. And Thank you, Chris. I got some more stories to share. Oh, well, we would love to hear it. Thank you, Chris. All right, fellas. Take care. Chris Childs, ex-Net, ex-Nick, ex-Raptor. Great, great guy. Oh, yeah. Really, really, really great. And and gave us an hour. Yeah. Gave us an hour on the show. And you know what? I, I wanted to hear his opinion towards John Murray. Thank you to Carl for yes. uh, giving us and asking us to ask him that question. Because uh, now you know that he has reached out to Tanner and he would love to sit down with John Morant and, and talk to him. Because it, this is... It's not safe. He's putting himself in a situation which could cost him his life. I mean, if if he's throwing up gang signs and carrying around loaded guns, you, there are real gangsters out there that have no problem shooting at innocent people. So That's uh, a lot of psychological side effects that could be. So, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. It re- really is. But uh, uh, hopefully uh, the kid figures it out because he's he's young and he's so friggin' talented. Yep. He re- he's... If you don't think he's a top seven, top eight player in the NBA, then you haven't watched him. He has changed the Memphis Grizzlies. He really has. The Memphis Grizzlies, the last, what, two years, three years, they've been a top three team in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And and he, he, one of the main reasons why is is him. I mean, he is special. And, and I think the, the all those gun things that were happening this year with the, obviously, the strip bar, and then uh, this was before they got eliminated out of the playoffs – I think that affected the way the Grizzlies played in the playoffs. They should have beaten the Lakers. They right. were better than the Lakers. They're very deep and they're very talented. Like they should have easily beaten the Lakers. I just it was unbelievable. And 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 John Moran hasn't proven himself in the playoffs yet. He has slowly but surely been compared to Russell Westbrook. Okay, and he's more talented than Russell Westbrook. Yes. But if you're not going to get your team over the top, you're going to always be compared to. Or th- these players that never could get their team to the next level. So John Moran's still young. He still has a lot of basketball left. But how long is it going to take for him to figure it out? Right. That's that's the question. So we have a little bit left on the show. Carl Lawson restructures his contract. Okay, and that and I I I will get into this with this ESPN field. Uh, Yates reported that Carl Lawson took a pay cut of $6 million this season. This moves and helps the Jets create $12.7 million more in cap space, which could help Quinn Williams signing. Uh, Lawson was set to make $15 million in non-guaranteed money this season in the final year of his three-year $45 million contract. Lawson can make $3 million of the money in incentives related to sack totals and total playing time. The Jets now have $19.4 million in cap space and could have up to $40 million if the Jets restructure Aaron Rodgers' deal. The Jets have other players they can move to clear cap space, including Corey Davis, John Franklin Myers, and Dwayne Brown. The Jets are still in the process of paying Quinnen Williams, who is seeking a deal that would make him the second highest paid defensive tackle in NFL history. So I will say this. Quinn Williams is going to be signed, 
Okay, there's no question. The fact that Carl Lawson took a pay cut on his final year tells you that he will do anything he can to make sure that the Jets get Quinn Williams because the Jets know their defense is going nowhere without Quinn Williams. You added Al Woods and you added, uh, you know, defensive line help uh, this offseason to to really take that that defensive side of the ball to that next level. They were a top five team in almost every single statistic defensively last year, but they lacked depth in the middle of the field, especially their front seven. They're giving themselves the depth that they need, especially Quinn Williams, who last year transitioned to like a two-down defensive tackle to a three-down defensive tackle. And that was because of the beginning of the season when he went after Ulbricht saying that you you don't need guys blitzing. You don't need five, six guys. You just need four guys, and we can get to the quarterback, which he proved that last year. He had his all-pro year last year. He showed you why Mike McCagnin, a couple of years ago, drafted him from Alabama as the third pick for the New York Jets. And he is... He is the future at the position at defensive tackle. He is the if he's not the best defensive tackle in the league, he's right there with Aaron Donald and Chris Jones. Uh, but Chris Jones, both Chris Jones and Aaron Donald are getting up there in age, and Quinnen is just twenty five, going to be twenty six. He's going into the prime parts of his career, so um, he has a chance to be something special. He is something. He has a chance to be somebody great. Chris Jones, he's won a Super Bowl. Aaron Donald. Won a Super Bowl. Now it's his opportunity to take the Jets to that next level with Aaron Rodgers. So it's it's interesting. And and Carl Lawson, he is, I believe, he, if the Jets can bring him back next year on a cheap contra- contract, they will. I If he has another one of those years where he has eight or nine sacks, last year I think he had seven and a half. If he has eight or nine sacks this year with this defense, he's going to get a lot of money next year. Somebody is going to pay Carl Lawson. Because Carl Lawson is still fairly young. I think he's 28 this year. Yeah, uh, He'll be 29 next year. He can get another three, four-year deal from another team if he shows up this year and puts up the numbers that the Jets expected him when they brought him from uh, brought him from Cincinnati to the Jets. So it's an interesting, interesting season that the Jets are going to be setting themselves up with. I, I like Carl Lawson. I think he's, he's been a good you know, veteran player for this young defensive line. But the questions will... Uh, have to be health, one, and two, could this defense put up the numbers they did last year um, as as successful as they were last year? Their offense was horrible. Right, and you talk about Carl Lawson, too. A lot of Jets fans are criticizing him both last season and the the first year he came in in 2021 where their overall sack totals weren't amazing. But what Carl Lawson has always been good at is consistent pressure rate, too. And he does it on both sides of the line. He did it on the left and on the right side as an edge rusher, too. And now getting him at $12 million a year is definitely a good discount for that kind of thing. Yes, he can get that money back in incentives, too. But the Jets also clear a lot of cap space to give Quinn and Williams what he wants, too. And there's other players, too, that they've been linked to. Bringing back Juan Alexander is another one that's a possibility, too. And that kind of defense is going to be one without a weakness if you do that kind of thing, too. And I always said the Jets should not try to trade Carl Lawson. I know there were rumors of it last year because they need a veteran pass rusher. And he's still kind of young, too, like you said, 28 years old, to help out these other young pass rushers. Now drafting Will McDonald, drafting Jermaine Johnson last year. They need that kind of guy. That guy that could uh, – he's not going to draw the double teams because Quentin Williams will do that. But he's going to be that veteran leader to help out those guys, too. And Quentin Williams now is going to get his money, too. For all the Jets fans worried about that, it's going to come. You, you look at the contracts that some of these players are making – and. 
And I understand Quinn Williams. I understand it. When he believes he's the best at his position, or last year he was the best at his position, but if he believes he can do this consistently, now moving forward for the Jets, the way the, de- the Jets and how young the Jets are defensively, well, then you pay the man. And I, I understand he is going to be expecting 26 to $27 million. That's what has been said. He, he wants to be the highest paid at that position. The question is... Uh, how many years is he going to get? I, I've heard that the Jets did offer him the $26.5 million that he wanted, but they only want to give him a four-year deal. I think he wants oh. a five-year deal, and that's the problem right now. They gave him – they offered him the money that he wanted and and uh, practically offered him the guaranteed money, uh, all guaranteed practically. The problem is, is they only wanted to give him a three- or four-year deal, and he wants a five. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And also the guarantee money distribution, too. You were talking about maybe doing it uh, if they can't restructure Aaron Rodgers' deal the way they want to. Maybe he takes a little less than that, but more guaranteed money in the first year, too. And maybe that's what the Jets are trying to figure out now. What's the best combination? They're going to sign Quentin Williams. There's no question they're going to sign Quentin Williams. For anybody writing the stories that Chicago and the Texans and – uh, you know, this team, that team would be interested in making making a move for a guy like Quinn Williams. The Jets aren't trading him. Okay, no. I, I cannot see them trading him. The one of the main reasons why Robert Sala took this job was Quinn Williams. So finally, he's developed him. Finally, he's got him playing at the level that he wants him to play, the Aaron Donald level that he wants him to play. You're going to trade him? It doesn't make sense. Now, don't bring up Jamal Adams. He is not Jamal Adams. He's a better player at his position than Jamal Adams was. At a more important position, too. Yeah, so I I can't see it happening. I I really can't. And I I know Jeff fans are upset about this, just as much as you guys were so upset that they didn't trade for Aaron Rodgers yet. It happened, did it not? So stop. I, I mean, Joe Douglas said Quentin Williams is a Jet. He uh, our, he also said uh, a couple of weeks before he made the move to and the trade for Aaron Rodgers, he said that Aaron Rodgers is going to be a Jet. He wasn't lying, and he's not lying about Quinn Williams. For for anybody to think that he is is an idiot. Okay, and the fact that these writers, the Rich Saminis of the world, and all these other guys posting up stuff that Quinn Williams uh, could be traded, that he's unhappy, and that that's why he stopped following the Jets. Every single player that's a free agent that wants to make a statement stops following their team. Okay? Is that an accurate summary of everything Eric Martini would have texted you? (laughs) Stop. I mean, it's ridiculous. I don't know why anybody's sitting here today and thinking that he is not going to be a Jet. But it's going to be a fun season. I I really do. It is so wide open in the, uh, the AFC East. I don't care what anybody says. Even the Patriots have a chance to make a run this year. They do. They do. I don't know. Because we don't know how good the defense is going to be. And if Macaroni Jones actually shows up this year with O'Brien as the coach and their running game was as good as it was last year, they're going to be hard to stop. This is a this is an offensive team that finds offensive linemen somehow in the draft and free agents that by the way they run their offense, they, they look like they're they're superstars, these offensive linemen. And then they go to other teams and they look terrible. Oh, thank you. <laughs> they, it's true. Oh, it, yeah. True. I, lived, I lived that with Nate Solder. Thank you. <laughs> it's not just Nate Solder. Oh, There's, no, I'm not saying he's the only one. Trent Brown, too, with the Raiders recently. So. so many guys have left the Patriots and they were dominant forces as an offensive lineman there. And then they go to other teams and they fail. They're never that good. Uh, even Vince Wilfork, defensive lineman, who went to the Texans. He right. was good, but he wasn't, he wasn't Patriots good. No. You know, so it, it's... 
you see a lot of these players that move on from other team, you know, from the Patriots to other teams, and they're they're not as good. And that has a lot to do with the scheme. It has a lot to do with Bill Belichick and the teaching and and everything like that. And that's why I think the Patriots are still dangerous, even though I still think they're the weakest team in the AFC East. Yeah. And I heard Jeff say they're going to be bad. I cannot see the Patriots having a losing record this year. I, I cannot. They're still going to be competitive either way. So it's going to make the division as a whole tough. They're winning. I, I think they win. They're a 500 team this year. I cannot see them going under 500. Yeah. I can't. Even last year, weren't they over 500? They were 8 and 9. So yeah. one oh, game so, over. <laughs> so this is the first year that they. But that has a lot to do with the extended season. Right. The extended uh, game. But. I mean, the Patriots were practically a 500 team. I expect them to be a 500 team this year. I expect every single one of these teams in the AFC East to be 500. That's how good the AFC East is this year. The question is, uh, how good is the AFC as a whole with all these young quarterbacks and all these talented quarterbacks now in the AFC and even the young ones? Trevor Lawrence is in the AFC uh, you go up and down. Herbert, Russell Wilson, who's still fairly in the prime of his career, still at, I believe is uh, is quite possibly going to put up the numbers that he put up in Seattle. Now that uh, Sean Payton uh, over there uh, is is over there with the Broncos, so I, I think there's even the I think the weakest quarterback position right now in the AFC would probably be the Patriots and. The Raiders. I, I mean, honestly, if you even the Texans, they have CJ Stroud. Who knows how good he's going to be? He could be really, really good. Trevor Lawrence in that division. Who else? Uh, yeah, there's other two rookies in that division: Will Levis and Anthony Richardson. If they Will start, Levis so, yeah. uh, and and Anthony Richardson, you don't know what those guys are going to turn out to be. Those guys could be superstars too in the league. I think Will Levis is definitely going to be. I don't know what Anthony Richardson is coming from Florida, but. I, I I think that the AFC East, I mean the AFC, is loaded with quarterbacks and young quarterbacks. Oh, yeah. So uh, it's wide open. It is going to be fun to watch this year. Uh, the schedules came out, uh, and I'm excited. Uh, as a Jet fan, I'm excited. I don't like the way the schedules are set up, but it is what it is. The Jets have to play what's on their, you know, on their uh, their schedule, and and they got to go out there and win. If Aaron Rodgers goes out there and plays. At the top of his game, the Jets are going to be a contender. The question is, how much of a contender? Only time will tell. Speedy, are you ready for Bracket Wars? Yes, the Bracket Wars Championship. Here we go. It's time for Bracket. 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 It's time for Bracket Wars. All right, so we end up with both of the number one seeds, the two 90s dynasties. We've talked about the Chicago Bulls a lot with Chris Childs. They are one of the matchups, and the New York Yankees of the 1990s and the late 1990s into the 2000s are the other one. The number one seed, Chicago Bulls of the mid and late 90s. 1992, 93 season, 57-25 and 25 record, second best in the Eastern Conference, beat the Hawks. Beat the Cavaliers, beat the Knicks in the playoffs, and then knocked off Charles Barkley and the Phoenix Suns in the NBA Finals. 93-94 season, 55-27, and regular season record third in the Eastern Conference. Beat the Cavaliers in the first round, lost to the Knicks in the second round. 94-95 season, 47-35 and record, fifth in the Eastern Conference. Beat the Hornets in the first round of the playoffs, lost against the Magics in the second round of the playoffs with the return of Michael Jordan and the number 45 number, which transitioned into 23 during that series. 95-96 season, 72-10. and One of the greatest seasons in NBA history. Best record in the NBA. Beat the Heat. Beat the Knicks. Beat the Magic. And these are 
great Heat teams, great Nick teams, great Magic teams, and then knocked off the Seattle Supersonics, Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, the glove in the NBA Finals. 96-97 season, 69-13 and record, best in the NBA, beat the Bullets, Hawks, and Heat in the playoffs, and then beat the Jazz in the NBA Finals. 97-98 season, 62-20 and record, tied for the best in the NBA, beat the Nets, Hornets, Pacers in the playoffs, and then knocked off the Jazz in the NBA Finals once again. Key players... The greatest of all time, Michael, a.k.a. Killer Air Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Steve Kerr, Tony Kukoc, Ron Harper, Phil Jackson. One of the greatest teams assembled in professional sports, the Chicago Bulls. One of the greatest combinations of everything, concepts, defense, influence with the international players. Uh, Phil Jackson, like you said, doing so many things with so many different personalities too. You were talking about it earlier where like Scottie Pippen not even wanting Dennis Rodman there. Nope. And somehow Phil Jackson was able to manage all that. Michael Jordan was able to manage all that. An absolutely insane fusion of just everything imaginable you wanted a team and everything imaginable that kept the game entertaining too. All the trash talking in that 90s era back- well, basketball we were talking about earlier and we were talking about a lot with Chris Childs. Absolutely. And now the number one seed, 1990s New York Yankees. 1996 season, the farewell tour of, well, 95 was the farewell tour of Don Manny. This was the Derek Jeter, 96 Yankees, 92-70 and 70 record, best in the American League, beat the Rangers, Orioles in the playoffs, and then beat the great Atlanta Braves in the World Series. 97 season, uh, they were 96-66 and 66 with their record, second best in the American, lose against the Indians in the ALDS. 98 season, 114-48, one of the greatest records of all time in Major League history, best in the MLB, beat the Rangers, Indians in the playoffs, and then beat the Padres in the World Series. 99 season, 98-64 and 64 record, best in the American League, beat the Rangers, Red Sox in the playoffs, and then beat the Braves again in the World Series. 2000 season, 87-74 and 74 record, fifth best in the American League, beat the Athletics, Mariners in the playoffs, and then beat the New York Mets in the World Series in 2000. And then, 2001 season, 95-65 and 65 record, third best in the American League, beat the Athletics Mariners in the playoffs, and the loss against the Diamondbacks in the World Series. And Derek Jeter came out and said that was probably the biggest loss in his career, and he believed that they were so much better than the opponent, and they lost against the Diamondbacks when they had a 3-2 lead yeah. in that series. Uh, key players, Derek Jeter, Jorge Posada, Bernie Williams, Andy Pettit, Roger Clemens, Mariano Rivera, David Wells, uh, Paul O'Neill, Tino Martinez, uh, Wade Boggs. You go up and down that roster, the pitching staffs, David Cohn. Uh, it, this was as good of a roster of, you know, of, of any baseball team in a 10-year span uh, than you can really imagine. I, I mean, with some of the greatest young players at their positions. Uh, I mean, the New York Yankees of the 90s were as good of a dynasty we've as we've seen in professional sports in the last 40 years. And one of the rare ones we've seen in baseball just really as a whole in the last uh, 60 years, probably mm-hmm. since the 1950s Yankees in the free agency slash, I mean, it's not really salary cap era, but the free agency era. The Yankees were really the only one that like stayed on that long. The Giants did it like we said yesterday in uh, 2010s, but even they had like so many bad seasons and missed that. The Yankees didn't have a bad season amidst all that. And even when they lost players, they, they had a backup player 
then right away they had so many great player development. Like you said, they brought back Roger Clemens, they brought in Andy Pettit, they had fill in the free agents when they need to. It wasn't the late 2000s Yankees that were built on free agency with A-Rod and all those guys. It was a core, it was a great group of trade deadline acquisitions, and it was a well-oiled machine that beat so many good teams in the playoffs too, even when they weren't the best team in the American League in the regular season that year. So give them a lot of credits. All right, who do you have? I am going to go with the Yankees. I'm going to go with the Yankees for this reason. I think it's harder to do in baseball, doing what they did. I think basketball, you've seen a lot more dynasties as it is. I The Bulls had so many insane regular season records, but I think the Yankees, that fusion of talent, that process as a whole is just so much harder to do in baseball. So I'm going to give them the edge here. I'm going with the Chicago Bulls. I, I mean, I'm a Yankee fan, but and I, I understand how hard it is to do in a baseball, but Michael Jordan... That 90s Bulls team was the greatest basketball team of all time. And I I wasn't alive for the show, really, to watch the Showtime Lakers and and those Boston Celtic teams. But this, this team had all the defense you possibly could have. You have four all-world defensive players on your starting line. Four out of the five players starting could be the best at their position. Ron Harper. Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, they were all world defensive players. They were as good as anybody. And offensively, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman was one of the greatest rebounders. And Phil Jackson, one of the greatest coaches of all time. This roster was stacked. And not only that, the depth that they had off the bench, the three-point depth that they needed in the triangle offense was fantastic. Uh, the size that they had. And they weren't the best players. I mean, when you look at Luke Longley, I mean, was he that great of a center? He wasn't. But he was everything the Bulls needed at that time to, to be the dominant force that they were. Nobody, no NBA team at any decade would have beaten this Bulls team in a seven-game series. That's how good this Bulls team was. Uh, the Yankees in the 90s, yes, they were fantastic. There's no question that they were with all the players that they had. But there were Yankee teams that were just as good or even better. I mean, with the rosters that they've had over the years. The the Yankees uh, with Babe Ruth and uh, uh, Lou Gehrig and Joe DiMaggio. I mean, the rosters were stacked. And even after that, Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, uh, uh, the just the Whitey Ford, Whitey Ford, yeah, yeah. It, there were so many good rosters with the New York Yankees. Could could I say this was the greatest roster in Yankee history? No. Could I say this is the greatest basketball team ever? Hundred percent. I'm going with the Chicago Bulls of the mid and late '90s to knock off the New York Yankees. I guess the fans will have yep. the final vote on who is the championship, the champions. Of our bracket wars, uh, it, it's really interesting. But all uh, right, the Twitter polls will decide. Yes, and po- post it up on Twitter. Post it up on my Twitter. Uh, let it stand out. I'll get you my Twitter account information so you can post it up. Uh, but it, it's so very interesting. And bracket wars has been fun. Uh, the next bracket wars we're going to have is players of respectable teams, uh, the dominant forces of Michael Jordan and uh, Muhammad Ali and. You know, it didn't. It doesn't matter what sport it is. Is how they dominated in their sports, and and we'll have a bracket war of the top what twenty twenty four. I might expand it to thirty two. I might make it a little more with like thirty two indiv- individual athletes. So uh, you out. can you can argue so many great players in in decades of of their sports. I mean, defensively, offensively, uh, quarterback. I mean, it's 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 going to be great to watch now a player and and how you. Look at their decade and how they dominated their sports against against another player that dominated their decade in their sport. 
the way they did. So it's interesting. It really is. And uh, uh, this was fun. This was really, really fun. Thank you to Chris Childs. You're, you were fantastic. An hour on the show. We didn't, I didn't expect him to stay on for an hour, but the stories that he told us and so much inside information that he gave us about the Knicks, his career, his family life, John Morant, uh, Kyrie Irving. I, I mean, he just, he was fantastic. He really was. Thank you, Chris, for joining us as long as you did. Uh, thank you to all the fans that tune in and listen to us every single week. Listen to the Weekend Crunch, which will air at 7 p.m. No more Islanders. No problem. We will be live and in the studio on Saturday night at 7 o'clock. Uh, great show lined up for you guys. So definitely stay tuned on 103.9 if you miss it. If you, you, don't, you don't live in the Long Island area and you can't get it on your uh, FM dial, go to iHeartRadio and check out LI News Radio. And, and you can find us at 7 o'clock. Uh, it will be fun. That's for sure. Uh, again, we'll be back next week. Who do we have lined up next week? Uh, next week at 8 o'clock for sure, we will have uh, Robin Lumberg. He works for Sports Illustrated awesome. and uh, many different other platforms. He will be back on for the first time in about a year and a half as Since well. Since I was in North Carolina. Yep. And there is a chance, depending on the schedule of his game, because he's coaching in uh, Coachella Valley in the AHL now, ex-Ranger forward uh, Stu Bickle might be joining us as well. Awesome. He's, now, he's an assistant coach for that. They're still in the AHL playoffs right now in the uh, their division championship. So that'll be fun, I'm sure. We'll have two or three more guests, so just stay tuned. Uh, Speedy is uh, doing his job and doing it very, very well. Thank you again to Chris Child. Keep listening to us. We will be back next week on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Until then, this is Errol Marks and Speedy Petey saying goodnight and enjoy your weekend. Good night, everybody. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.